How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Oh, it's for real now. We're recording. Oh, good. So everything you say can and will be used against you. At some point on the internet, yes, it will. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Say Gary's penis. Gary's penis. Ah, it's going to be used against you. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's dumb. That is dumb. Well, hello and welcome to uh, Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know and more about your favorite movies and the people who made them. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I am co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm the other guy, writer, comedian, Mr. Tade Davis. Folks, thank you so much for joining us for part nine of our series titled The Man of Tomorrow, wherein we've been discussing the career of writer, director, producer, explorer, Mr. James Cameron. Inventor, a multi-hyphenate. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Today's film examines the importance of protecting our planet amidst the ever-expanding industrial complex. This is Pocahontas. I'm sorry, that's the wrong. Let me try this again. This week's movie focuses on the experience of a man taken out of his element and forced to look at the damage his people have caused the planet-conscious natives. This is Ferngold. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, three times a lady. Here we go. It's a good joke. In this episode, we see a boy learning of the horrors of greed through the eyes of the creatures he's come to love. This is Jungle Book. It's Avatar, people. Okay. <laughs> we watched Avatar. All of that, and you never hit on dances, dances with wolves, wolves, the oh, last samurai. Well, like, comedy yeah. works better in threes, fellas. Come on. Oh, does it? Is that that's why we added you to the podcast? Yes, yes. That's what I bring. That's what I bring. Stupid. Some people would say this art there's an argument against that, then. <laughs> Uh, speaking oh, wait, of an, comedy, argument, an, an argument against that joke working <laughs> okay. yes yes okay that's what i thought <laughs> hey uh hey hey what todd yeah what do you get if a navi pees on your lawn i don't know justin what do i get if a navi pees on my lawn bluegrass ah! <laughs> i don't know like what we didn't see an avatar uh pee but well we didn't see a penis yeah, that's uh, true. Maybe you know, avatars. Well, yeah, because they fuck with their wearing... hair. Yeah, but uh, little known fact: the end of their penis also has those little frilly things coming out of it, like on their, like on their braids. I imagine uh, that that deaf lady from Shape of Water would describe the Navi the same way as like opening her hands and the penis comes out. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's true. Yeah. Hey, uh, hey, Gary, how do you know if a Navi has broken into your house? Uh, don't I don't know. You look for blueprints. <laughs> I like that one. I really that was like pretty good. I really like that Todd's bringing in a, a sound clip from Strange Wilderness <laughs> as, a, as a recurring motif on this Avatar episode. It's 
Hey, uh, what's what's a Navi's favorite type of porn? Mm, I don't know, Justin. What is a Navi's favorite type of porn? Blue cocky. <laughs> Why do you keep doing that? <laughs> hey, uh, uh, what what color does a Navi turn when you choke it? I don't know, Justin. What color? I don't know. I was too busy masturbating. <laughs> We've broken. We have broken Todd. <laughs> oh, this is so weird. Yeah, like those, I, <laughs> those jokes got a little more blue the further we went on. <laughs> oh my god! Now, <laughs> Todd, you okay? <laughs> no, that's all I got. Those are all the Avatar jokes oh. I've got. All right, I know. Now I just want to Google more Avatar gotta, jokes, but I keep getting Avatar. You gotta, you gotta the last say your name. Thank you so much. Good night. And get Good off night. stage, Dust. Yes. Good night. Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. Now, who's writer comedian here? There you go. I, he is the captain now. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about? Avatar. Avatar. All right. So, in the years following the release of Titanic, James Cameron took a hiatus from feature filmmaking, instead, spending the better part of the next decade going on multiple deep sea expeditions and filming documentaries about a variety of shipwrecks. Or at least, you know, when you read about James Cameron's hiatus on the internet, uh, where people, you know, are, are totally chill, mm. uh, everyone seems to think that's like all he was doing. He was just like fucking off, you know riding around in the ocean but that's true i mean he did spend a lot of time exploring and during he did the, fuck off he did and that's true <laughs> but uh if you listen to our last episode where we talked about that 12 year span in between movies then you'll know that he was still pretty involved in the entertainment industry as well during that time uh, in addition to working on several film projects that never really took flight he also served as a producer on other people's films like uh in like Steven Soderbergh Solaris. Uh, he, he created a television show that was fairly successful. He almost went to Mars. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> and, I forgot about that. And he started developing a new form of 3D technology. I thought a quote from the BAFTA interview where he said he, he always justified all of this to himself, that he was perfecting the 3D technique to do a 3D movie in the future. And he says, in fact, that was true. We were doing that, but also just having an amazing time. And I was raising a family and having children. I knew that the kind of a commitment that I made to do a movie wouldn't allow me to have any free time. I would just work seven days a week and it was completely consuming and I wasn't willing to do that. So everything just kind of worked out the way it was meant to work out from my perspective. From an external view, though, it does seem like I just sort of went away and then came back for Avatar. But a lot of the skills that he learned and technologies that he created during that time would eventually come to be very useful when it was time to make his follow-up to Titanic. And it took him 12 years, uh, but in 2009, James Cameron was back. He was finally back with a new feature film, a new narrative film. And that film, of course, is the subject of today's episode and our final, final episode on James Cameron. For now, I guess, until we talk about the next four Avatar movies down the line. <laughs> uh, but we are, of course, talking about Avatar. I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. You'd be making a difference. I became a Marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. We have an indigenous population called the Na'vi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit and they need to relocate. The concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. 
they're grown from human DNA mixed with DNA of the natives. Marine in an avatar body. That's a potent mix. Jake, it's real simple. I want you to learn from the inside. I want you to gain their trust. Well, this is your fault. I need your help. Strong prey on the weak. And nobody does a thing. You've got one hour. You knew this would happen? Everything changed. There's no stopping him. We're going up against gunships with bows and arrows. Well, I guess we better stop him. So uh, judging by the success of this film since its release, I probably don't need to say this, but we are going to be discussing Avatar in excruciating detail. So as opposed to Unobtainium, here there be spoilers. I mean, Gary did go 25 years without seeing Titanic, although that's, I'm pretty sure the ending was spoiled for him beforehand. <laughs> no, knew what was going to happen. By, hey, that was, stupid, uh, by that stupid history class. <laughs> do you hear James Cameron's making a sci-fi movie about cyborg movie producers? N- no. Tell Arnold me Schwarzenegger it. will be Bach. Oh, my God. That's Todd's new laugh. I don't know which one is, is <laughs> hurts my ears more. That one or Todd's actual like high-pitched hyena laugh. <laughs> All right. Well, if you've been listening to this series since the beginning, then you know that James Cameron grew up as a voracious reader of science fiction, a huge fan of all the classics. Uh, and it was in the sci-fi novels that he read in his youth that we find the origins of Avatar. When he wrote the original treatment for the film, he says that he drew inspiration from, and this is a a quote from him, he says, every single science fiction book that I ever read was an inspiration for this film. And the first treatment for the film was written all the way back in 1996. But actually the first hints of Avatar go back even further to the 1970s, before he was even making movies. Back then, James Cameron was still a truck driver for the Bria Unified School District, but he would still write and draw and paint in his off time. He was still an artist. And around this time, he started painting these fanciful scenes featuring flying jellyfish, uh, glowing wood sprites, colorful bioluminescent forests and rivers, uh, fan lizards, big-eyed cats, all these crazy creatures. And these he wasn't drawing these or painting these for any like particular project. This was just a, kind of a creative thing. But these images kind of stuck with him. And then in 1978, when he was writing Xenogenesis with his buddy Randall Frakes, they had to come up with several ideas for planetary environments to, in order to tell a story of a man and a woman looking for a place to start a new Earth. So Cameron again painted these glowing forests and big flying creatures for the film. Uh, he was painting lush forests and mountains surrounded by clouds. And this story, Xenogenesis, the way it was originally supposed to end, Uh, If you've listened to this whole series since the beginning, then you know that Xenogenesis was a short film that he created, first thing he ever really directed. And that short film was kind of a proof of concept for what was to be a feature film. And in the feature film, it was going to end with these voyagers finding a new planet to relocate to, only to discover that the air on that planet was toxic. And the human children who lived on the planet would have to be genetically modified in the womb in order to survive on the planet. And these hybrids would grow up tall and lean with blue skin and golden eyes. Uh, Cameron even painted a figure in the late 70s that depicted a tall, slender blue girl standing in a field of magenta grass. And then there were these flying creatures in the background that he called air sharks that would eventually become known as the Banshees. 
And of course, we know that the feature-length version of Xenogenesis never really got made, so these paintings and ideas got put on the back burner for a while. But I do think it's really fascinating here at the end of this James Cameron series to know that the genesis of Avatar was all the way back when he was working on his very first ever film project, the very first thing that we, we kind of talked about on this series nine episodes ago was where Avatar actually began. Oh yeah. I mean, some of that stuff sticks with you, especially if it, you know, comes to you in a, you know, creative state or a, uh, you know, a dream or something like that. There's some weird dreams I've had where it's just like, it just burns a, burns a little crevice in there and it sticks around. And I do think the idea of the blue, the avatar uh, or the Navi being blue actually came from a dream that his mother had that she told him about where she had seen a like a tall blue woman when he was a child and she had yeah. told him about it. So that idea kind of stuck in his head and he utilized that imagery when he was creating these these paintings and stuff. Fast forward to 1996, around the time he's working on Titanic. Cameron writes his first treatment for Avatar using concepts from that Xenogenesis script. Uh, After starting the treatment, it only took him about three or four weeks to kind of get the entire story and all the characters sorted the way he wanted. It just kind of, as he describes it, it just kind of spilled out of him uh, only really because he had been processing it in his imagination for three decades at this point. He decided to write the treatment in the mid-90s partially to inspire his artists at Digital Domain, his his special effects company. Uh, They had, you know, they had started their first job that they had done was working for him on True Lies. They had mostly done composite stuff, uh, nothing particularly exciting, although they did get an Oscar nomination for it. And they had been working on Titanic as well, but they hadn't really had much of a chance to do any real character animation on those projects. And of course, creature and character animation were really the main reasons that Cameron and Stan Winston had founded Digital Domain to begin with. So back when they were planning Digital Domain, it was the early 90s, James Cameron wrote out a 13-page, what he called a digital manifesto, where he laid out where he thought filmmaking was headed in the coming years and filmmaking technology. So in this manifesto, which remember, this is written in about 1992, Cameron described something that he called performance capture, where an actor puts on a data suit that sends information about the actor's physical movements to a computer that would put the performer into a synthetic environment. And then artists, digital artists could turn the actor's digital performance into a character or a creature. Here's an exact quote from this manifesto. He says, Jack Nicholson could create not just the voice, but the total body performance of a demon while puppeteers nearby causes tail to wag and his pointed ears to furl and twitch. The actor can truly become his animated character. Now, James Cameron didn't just pull this out of his ass. James Cameron did not invent the concept of motion capture, which is kind of what that makes it sound like. Uh, so after he had been, you know, he'd, he'd worked on uh, the abyss with ILM. He sorry, started working with ILM on the abyss. He worked with them through Terminator two as well. Uh, but after working on the abyss, he was kind of hanging out with some of the best and brightest in special effects. So of course they were always talking about where the technology would go. And this is the kind of stuff that they would talk about. So this was kind of a product of those conversations he'd had with these guys. Also, when you're like really into all the stuff James Cameron is and you go like crazy with just like uh, just extreme uh, things, the only way you can come is is by unique things like uh, patreon Jack Nicholson as a furry and that sort of thing. <laughs> He's a demon, though. Don't yeah, knock it uh, until you try it, fellas. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, what James Cameron was discussing here was really the latest in a long line of technological advances that 
I mean, if you really want to trace the evolution of motion capture or performance capture, you can go all the way back to 1915, where uh, an animator named Max Fleischer, very you know well-known animator, I'm sure you've heard of him, he used a technique that he called rotoscoping, where animators would draw over live-action footage of actors performing a scene. Uh, Walt Disney saw what Fleischer was doing. He really liked it, so he used that technique in Snow White. It gets used in the 70s by Ralph Bakshi, you know, the famed cult animator who did Lord of the Rings and American Pop and Cool World in the 90s. Uh, Richard Linklater used it in a kind of a different fashion, but very similar for a Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly. So mm. this isn't like, you know, this is very old technology that just continues to advance. And really, motion capture is sort of the next step in that evolution. Only you're you're tracking the movements of the actors with a computer. So in the mid-90s, uh, video game companies, video ga game companies were actually the first ones to start using motion capture in the way that we think of it now. Uh, this is right around the time that Cameron was writing his Avatar treatment. They started using this for video games. Uh, Prince of Persia was a big one where they'd use performance capture. Cameron deliberately wrote his treatment for Avatar in a way where the characters would, they would have to be done digitally. There was no, no way around that you couldn't do it with a guy in a suit talking about his design or his description of the characters he would say uh, if they were more human then they could be done with makeup which is boring would not advance the cause and had been done for 30 years in star trek if they were less human they could not have been performed by humans effectively so he needed something that was human in shape but that couldn't be so human to where it could just be a person on a set they also needed to be a little human looking so that the audiences would buy into the love story. If, if they were too far gone, then you would have a hard time connecting to the characters. So once he gave this over, he gave his treatment over to Digital Domain, uh, told them to kind of break it down. Can we do this? Uh, they break it all down, see what, you know, what would be required of them, you know, technology wise. And they concluded that it would take a lot of time, a lot of money. And then in the end, it would probably still look pretty fake based on the technology they had at the time. So Cameron decided, I'm going to put this on the back burner. I'm going to focus on Titanic, and maybe I'll revisit this down the line when the technology has caught up with the ideas in my head. Oh, I just uh, I remember him saying he actually left to do Titanic and said he gave them orders to figure it out while he does the other movie. He said, yeah. like, after Titanic, he said they were supposed to have all of the answers for me on how to make it, and they were still saying, you know, I'd give it on two years, and they were still saying it's going to take a lot more money and time. <laughs> right. And luckily, the field of motion capture was a growing one. I mean, the technology was advancing, not quite probably as quickly as Cameron wanted it to, but uh, he had used it in a limited way on Titanic. We talked about that during that episode where he would animate characters, you know, in these these big wide shots of the ship. You'd have characters that were walking across or falling off of the ship's decks. Uh, they, it gets used a good bit, but it's just really just the body performance. There was no facial capture in Titanic. Then in 1999, George Lucas used the same technique to create cinema's first fully digital character. Uh, one of the greatest characters in the history of the art form, I think we can all agree, right? Uh, <laughs> a celebrated general, a beloved senator, Mr. Jar Jar Binks. Which brings us to our uh, favorite uh, segment, who do we blame? <laughs> uh, wrong show, sorry. Sorry about that. Well, it was a couple of years later in 2002, when Cameron saw Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, that's when he knew that the technology was finally at a point where Avatar might be possible. He was amazed at what the artist at Weta Digital 
had managed to create with Gollum and, and how Andy Serkis's performance was still able to shine through in that character. Jar Jar Binks is one thing because Jar Jar Binks's face is still com- 100% animated. It's not based on a performance, whereas Gollum is based on Andy Serkis's performance. So in May of 2005, 20th Century Fox agreed to a $10 million development budget based on the strength of Cameron's treatment. So this isn't the budget for the film, although this is almost double what he had spent on his entire first film on The Terminator. Uh, This is just a development budget, $10 million. And that $10 million was uh, supposed to cover the cost of writing the script, uh, a year of designing characters and creatures, the hiring of artists, uh, the construction of a virtual studio, and the production of a test film that would help Fox decide if they wanted to fund the, the full project. John Landau, uh, who, you know, his producer on Titanic, he returned as Cameron's producer here. He, he nicknamed it Project 880. I don't know where the name Project 880 comes from. I don't yeah, know I why you just don't just call it Avatar because nobody knows what the hell that is. It's not yeah. like, <laughs> it, but I don't know. Maybe they just didn't want people to know that James Cameron was working on something else quite yet. I'm not sure. Mm. But Project 880 was what it was known uh, as for quite a long time, actually. Uh, although Cameron always called it Avatar in his scripts. And with his long absence from Hollywood, uh, there was understandably a lot of buzz about what film James Cameron might decide to do next. Uh, a lot of folks seem to think that it was an adaptation of Battle Angel Alita. Uh, they thought that would be his next project. Now, Battle Angel Alita, uh, we talked about it a little bit on our last episode, but that was an early 90s manga by Yukito Kishiro. Uh, it had first been brought to Cameron's attention by his friend Guillermo del Toro uh, and had served as an inspiration for Cameron's TV show Dark Angel, the Jessica Alba show we talked about last week. And there was a lot of reason to speculate that Alita would be Cameron's next film. It was one that would also allow him to utilize uh, this performance capture technology because the character of Alita would have to be created that way. Uh, and also on several occasions over the years, Cameron kept confirming that he'd be directing it, that it would be like his next film. He kept saying that over and over. Uh, it was actually originally scheduled to be his next production after Dark Angel. And then it was later scheduled to be his next film after Aliens of the Deep. Uh, that was in January 2005. And then he decided he's going to kind of focus on Project 880 instead. Uh, and the reason that he did that is because the reason that he chose Avatar over Alita his Avatar script had, he thought, a better scene, that, uh, a scene that would be better to test the technology that they were trying to create. You know, uh, he had this five-minute mix of action and dramatic dialogue between two fully CG characters uh, in Avatar. So Cameron decided, to, he's like, I'm going to start with that one. Uh, he would later say, it didn't occur to me that this decision would essentially be the decision of what film would be made first, but that's what happened. Uh, but he was really just doing it to, test out the the performance capture technology. Of course, after several other delays in rescheduling, I'm sure you guys know that Alita, the the movie, uh, which later became known as Alita Battle Angel, would end up being directed by Robert Rodriguez. It came out in 2019, uh, and Cameron served as the film's producer and co-screenwriter on that. Haven't seen it. You should. Yeah, me neither. I I want want to. to. Oh, look, samesies. <laughs> well, the uh, the test scene that he, he did during this was essentially a rough version of the scene in the finished film where Jake and Natiri, uh, where they first meet uh, after she saves him from these creatures called the Viper Wolves, these like wolf-like alien creatures that uh, I think kind of look like Uncle Deadly from the Muppets. Uh, if you know <laughs> yeah, what they Uncle- do. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't yeah. I, I can't not see Uncle Deadly's face on them when I'm watching this movie. But uh, so they she kills one. She prays over the dead animal's body. She berates Jake. You guys know the scene I'm talking about. It's a great scene. So this is what they shoot because it, it has the action plus this dialogue scene between the two. So you get a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of different pieces that you can kind of test out. Mm. So to film this and you could watch this very easily by the way this test footage is out there it's on youtube it's also on the film's blu-ray as a special feature it's really easy to watch uh, but he hired a young actor named daniel best to play the jake character which had i think his name was josh in in the original footage or the original script uh and then yunjin kim who had just come off the first season of lost she played son on lost she was cast yeah. in the as the natiri character who had a different name as well at the time that's cool Cameron shot this test footage in about a day and a half using this new motion capture technology, which included uh, markers on the face as well. So he could track their facial movements in addition to their body movements. Uh, and the, the caps they, they wore or the suits they wore, the mocap suits are very similar to what Andy Serkis wore as when he was playing Gollum. I'm sure you, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has probably seen some footage somewhere of someone in a motion capture suit. It's very common now, but it basically is like this, skin tight lycra suit with little dots all over it and the dots are used to reflect light so that cameras can pick them up uh, but to shoot this scene they also wore head rigs that cameron had designed that had small boom cameras attached to the front so there's think of like um garth brooks's microphone you know mm, that like okay. that like thing that sticks out except it's a camera pointed directly at your face that the actors are playing to Jeez. And that was really there so that they could track their facial expressions uh, in a more detailed way. Then shooting with a virtual camera, Cameron was able to see the actors as kind of crude versions of their alien characters, but see them in real time. It wasn't like we're just capturing it like this and then we're going to see what they actually look like in the environment later on. They created a technology where he could see he could look at a monitor that he could carry around in his hands looking at this uh, instead of looking through a camera lens, he's looking at this monitor and he can see Daniel best and Yunjin Kim as Navi characters in a synthetic environment. Uh, obviously it's very rough. It looks like a schematic, like a, you know, a previs. Yeah. Like a previs. It looks yeah. a lot like a previs, but he's still able to kind of picture it a little bit better than if you were just kind of using your imagination that, <laughs> you know, they're on set. Mm -hmm. uh, he And he filled this virtual studio of his, which is basically just a, a warehouse. They called it the volume. Uh, he filled it with very simple, minimal pieces of terrain so that the actors could simulate running across logs, you know, uh, across dirt, things like that. They would have little mounds made of wood and cardboard that they would run across to simulate them running through the trees and things like that. But if you look at it, it's just, it's just, it's everything's gray and white. It's, there's no accoutrements. They would have trees that they would move around now and then uh, just so that they would have something to play off of, but it's, it's very, very minimal. It's pretty wild. And then once he captured the performances, he could experiment with virtual production. He'd be able to actually replay the scene and then shoot it from other angles, like over and over. If he didn't like it from this angle, he could virtually move the camera to a whole different angle and do it over and over until he got the shot looking exactly like he wanted it to do without ever having to bring the actors back up. Uh, he could change the scale. He could smooth out motion. He could even move his characters around in the environment while he's doing this. He could move tree. If he didn't like where this tree was in relation to where the character was, just move the tree. It gave him a lot of freedom. And he also tested out every single shot in 3D. So he and Vincent Pace... Um, we talked about Vince Pace a little bit in the last episode, but they had started developing a new 3D technology, these new 3D cameras to shoot Ghosts of the Abyss 
and then Aliens of the Deep. And, and they even lent this camera out to Robert Rodriguez to shoot some scenes in the third uh, Spy Kids movie. Uh, and the camera's pretty cool looking. It's Remember we talked about how big and bulky traditional 3D cameras were back in the day? Even oh, yeah. the ones that, that Cameron had used on the Terminator 2 3D? Mm-hmm. They created the, a much smaller camera for this. And they basically have two lenses that are right next to each other that are what's essentially doing is recreating what your eyes do where you've got, they put them about that far apart, you know, like your eyes would be. And each camera works like one eye and then they sync up together. That's, that's basically the technology they created. It's, it's really incredible. Honestly, that this technology though, at this time, it was still kind of in its early stages. Uh, They spent another couple of weeks after shooting this, working through some of the kinks in the 3d. And then they edited together a five minute sequence. The next step they had was to take that scene to full resolution so you don't have these blocky little pre characters anymore. You need to create it to where they actually look like somewhere close to what they need to look like in the final film. Uh, so they, ref- they, they have to bring them to full resolution, refine these characters enough to convince Fox to fully fund the movie. So of this five-minute scene that they had edited together, Cameron selected a 37-second chunk of the scene to finalize anything longer than that would have just taken too long to render. Uh, And then he hired ILM to tackle the final animation on it. And the results of this were by all accounts, pretty terrible, Uh, especially for the Navi (laughs) woman. Uh, They said her color was off and her lips were really fake looking. Cameron actually described her as looking like a dead carp that washed up on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he watches this and he's kind of devastated. Like this is supposed to be the height of filmmaking technology and it looks like a bad 80s video game. So he kind of loses all hope in the project. He's like, oh, God damn it. This is, they said the technology was ready. It's clearly not. Uh, I don't know if I can make this movie. Well, the folks at ILM keep working on it. They spend the next like three months or so using their decades of CGI experience to continue to hammer away on the project, to continue to refine the animation. Uh, and then by the end of 2005, things were starting to look up. Cameron started to get a little more confident in it, started to feel a little bit better about the possibilities for the film and for the technology. So with this new confidence, he holes up in one of his vacation homes. I think this one was in Colorado uh, to kind of work, start start working on the script, the actual script. And Cameron has always had kind of a a love-hate relationship with writing. We've talked about this a little bit uh, on on the series, but he would just write for days on end. You know, like uh, we talked about it on Terminator 2, where I think he stayed up for like two days straight to finish the script before he had to fly off the the con film festival. Mm. Uh, He says that that's just his process when he talks about it. Uh, He's like, I can't be like a Stephen King, you know, Stephen King gets up in the morning, has his breakfast, sits down at the typewriter from 8am to 5pm. Like it's a job and just writes. He's like, I can't do that. I have to isolate completely and think about this movie 24 seven in order to get anything good written. And apparently it changed a lot from that original project 880 thing. Like, you know, he, you know, doing a lot of stuff to it. Cause I, I remember seeing the scriptment or whatever for the original 880. It was like, it's like, there's a, there's a lot of differences from what, what they had originally had on there and what, what ended up happening. Oh yeah. He, he, he reworked it quite a bit over time. And as he's writing this, he's he's still chatting online with ILM. Uh, they'd be messaging back and forth. They would send him their progress updates on, on the character design, on the animation. And one thing that they noticed while they were working on this was that the animation on Daniel Best's character, the, the male Navi, was working out a lot better. 
his character had actually been designed to look like him. Uh, they they hired him, then they created the design for the character. Whereas Kim's character had been designed before she was ever hired. So what happened was uh, so because Kim's mouth was so different from the mouth of the Navi character that she was playing, it made it really difficult to make the CG mouth hit all the correct shapes when she was talking. They did they wouldn't match up. And this was actually an important lesson that they learned, uh, and it would factor into Cameron's casting and design decisions on the final film once they moved forward. So they were finally able, after months of work, they were finally able to get this clip, 37 seconds, uh, to a place where they could screen it in 3D for the executives at Fox. And they did that on the Fox lot, and the guys at Fox were blown away. They were blown away by the technology. They were blown away by the 3D. They loved it. They were on board, but... Now Cameron had a uh, had a problem. This thirty seconds, this thirty seven second proof of concept had taken several months of minute changes to deliver what amounted to six CG shots. Uh, the final movie would have twenty five hundred CGI shots. Jeez. So now Cameron, he's like, he's got Fox. They're they're enthusiastic about it, or at least about the footage that they've seen. But now he's got to figure out how to make it happen. 2,500 times while also making the level of reality in the animation far surpass the test footage. But the, the thing is, even though they love the test footage and they love the direction that they were going with the technology, the folks at Fox didn't like Cameron's script. The draft that they had read was too long. It was 153 pages, but it was also still a work in progress. You know, he was still working on it during this time. And Cameron always continuously tweaks his scripts. Uh, he even incorporates material from rehearsals with the actors and then will rewrite the script or rewrite scenes. That's how he'd always worked. Uh, but I guess because it had been so long since Titanic that the folks at Fox had completely forgotten that that's how James Cameron did things. And then they also started getting cold feet because they saw the film as a very risky proposal. Uh, it was to be made with unproven technology. Uh, its main characters were these weird looking giant blue cat people. Uh, and as he often did, Cameron had planned to cast it with lesser known actors. Uh, and then there was the fact that they knew it was going to be incredibly expensive. They knew it was going to cost at least as much as Titanic, which at the time had been the most expensive movie ever made. So they knew that if they signed on for this, um, it's going to cost a lot of money and yeah. it's not a sure thing. Well, Cameron continued to rework and refine the script. He combined some characters, uh, the, uh, the Sigourney Weaver character was originally like two different characters that he kind of combined into one. Uh, he added some scenes. He added a whole opening set on earth where we first meet Sam Worthington's character. Uh, although those things did not make the final cut of the film anyway, but still, even after all this refining Fox still ended up passing on the project. They'd, they'd already invested $10 million in it, but they were just, getting cold feet about how much it was eventually going to cost. And they didn't really like the script. So they didn't green light it. It sounds disappointing, but also one of my biggest dreams is that somebody just hands me for 10, hands me $10 million for something. And then it's like, eh, never mind. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll just take this $10 million. <laughs> and, but we, we of course know James Cameron well enough by now to know that he's not just going to give up on the film just because Fox passed on it. He immediately approached Walt Disney Studios about taking on the film. Uh, Disney had actually been a partner with Cameron on his two IMAX 3D documentaries, so he had a relationship with them. And the current studio chairman, Dick Cook, 
believed, like Cameron, that 3D could be the future of movies. Uh, just a year earlier, Disney had released Chicken Little, which was the first film to ever be projected in digital 3D. Mm. I'm somewhat of a dick cook myself. I was really hoping for that, honestly. <laughs> That's it's a little sounds a little grosser than Dick Warlock. Sounds All right, Dick Smith, Dick Warlock. Dick Smith. Yeah, yeah, a dick cook. I mean, I guess mm. I don't know. I mean, isn't isn't that one of your mother's jobs? I don't. What, what I, don't, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, they, I'm not even they, sure they, how to, to react to that. To prepare it before <laughs> they eat it is where I was going. It, sorry, guys. Well, that's what open mics are for, to kind of refine <laughs> your... <laughs> this show is nothing if not an open mic. Just, <laughs> just see what works, what does it. <laughs> that's one of the ones you do at open mic, and you're like, yep, check yep. that one off the list oh, for the next time. Uh, the so... audience doesn't like this one. <laughs> All right, so uh, he approaches Disney. Disney... Doesn't take long. Two days after he met with them, Disney was on board. They're like, hell yeah, we'll make Avatar. Uh, the executives at Disney, unlike the ones at Fox, loved the script. Uh, they had faith in the project. And most of all, they wanted to be in the James Cameron business. Yeah. Of course, when Fox got wind that James Cameron had taken the project to Disney, they came crawling back. Uh, maybe they had a change of heart. Maybe they just didn't want to be seen as the guys who passed on a James Cameron uh, a new James Cameron movie when it ended up making, you know, when it ends up making a ton of money. Uh, but they also had a first look deal with James Cameron. Fox Fox and James Cameron had a contract, so they had the right of first refusal on it. So he ends up going with Fox. Seems uh, like they just refused it. I was about to say, it sounds like they already refused they, it. He's still got a first look deal with them, so they can come back. They can do, you come think back that that's, do you think Disney was just like, wait, you already refused it? And then Fox like, we got to one-up Disney. And then Disney's like, huh, joke's on you, motherfuckers, and bought them. <laughs> they did. <Yep. laughs> <laughs> we still got Avatar. <laughs> well, I, he had to make a couple concessions on his deal. He had to cut out a couple of scenes from the script. But then in October of 2006, Fox officially greenlit the film. So as Cameron continued to work on the script, he hired a linguist from the University of Southern California named Paul Fromer to create the Navi language. Uh, much like Tolkien had done with Elvish or Mark Okran had done with Klingon, Cameron planned on creating an, a complete constructed fictional language for the Navi. Um, I just threw in Mark Okran's name to impress Todd, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wondered about that, but yeah, because yeah, I, I don't think I ever have known that name, but uh, I looked, the, I looked it up. Yeah. I, I looked up, <laughs> I, I Googled who, who created Klingon, yeah. the Klingon language. And it's pretty impressive. Honestly, I read a little bit about the guy. It's, it's Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, the, so the language that Fromer created had about a thousand words uh, with about 30 added by Cameron. Uh, it mixed in bits of Maori, Polynesian and African languages. And once the language was created, the actors who played the Navi would have to master the new language. In fact, if, if someone came into audition and they couldn't make certain like clicks and sounds that were part of the language when they were auditioning, they wouldn't get the job. Like they, if you watch some, go online and watch some audition footage of this. And it's just like characters just making weird noises over and over. It's very, <laughs> it's very strange. It had to be really bizarre as a performer to do that. Wow. Nerds now have another hurdle to jump through if they want to get laid at San Diego Comic-Con. It's, <laughs> it's just so Speaking tough. Navi. Yeah. Cause you just got all these different languages to learn. It's a lot. Uh, it's too oh, many. Yeah. yeah. It's less aggressive than Klingon, though. It is. It sounds, sounds incredibly less aggressive. aggressive. But yeah. it is available on Duolingo. 
Oh my God. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Can you <is>. imagine? <laughs> I, I, I did, I did it for about a month and it was just like, I, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's too much. Listen, man, if you're well, going to learn a second language, make it an earthly one. I'm yeah. Make saying. it one that's practical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make it one that actually, one that actually exists. I'd say yeah. your best bet is like Chinese or Spanish or something, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like don't, don't, don't go for Klingon where <laughs> you're already married. There's like literally no reason for you to know it. I mean, if he, if he were not married, I don't think that, I don't think that the, the pickup line in Klingon is going to make a lot of panties drop. Listen, ah, it, no. it just narrow. It just narrows the field way down. Like it, it, it sure know. does. Yeah. Well, to cast the film, Cameron once again enlisted the help of his casting director, Molly Flynn or Finn, excuse me. Uh, Molly Finn would uh, unfortunately not be able to finish the film. She was diagnosed with melanoma and in 2005, uh, the sickness forced her to retire, and she would ultimately pass away from the disease in 2007 at the age of 69. Uh, Marjorie Simkin would end up taking over casting duties later on. Uh, and as a fun cinema shot connection, uh, Marjorie Simkin uh, was also the casting director on Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, okay. Also hey, Star look. Trek Discovery. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, oh, hey, listen, I just want to say I am super proud of us that nobody said anything about 69. I knew you were thinking it. Yeah, you just. I knew you were thinking it too. I saw. I saw the corners of your mouth light up, and I shook my head (laughs) no for people who can't see the Zoom call we're on right now. And I thought you understood. Listen, we are respectful, but we know we know when to joke. We know when not to joke. We. I don't know that we do. There. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I've crossed. (laughs) I feel like I've crossed the line a few times on this show. Well, while she was still working on the project, Finn found Cameron, his leading lady, a little-known actress named Zoe Saldana, who would be cast to play Natiri. So Zoe Saldana had made her film debut in a movie called Center Stage in 2000. Don't know anything about it. Haven't seen it. Barely, I, I, don't, I may have heard of it, but Center Stage is a really... You've seen it? I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. I, was was dating, it? I was dating a girl in high school at the time. I, both of us were in high school. <laughs> let, let, let me be clear about that. <laughs> Uh, okay uh, let's let's try one more time my high school girlfriend <laughs> and i went to see it she was a dancer so we ah, gotcha wanted to, she wanted to see it so we saw it well then in 2002 uh zoe Saldana appeared alongside britney spears in crossroads hmm. uh, that same year she appeared in drumline with nick cannon now those two films are hardly like cultural milestones although uh, especially people our age probably remember them very well and they were modest box office successes which led to Saldana being uh, landing a few small roles in very big films, like the first Pirates of the Caribbean. That's probably the first thing I remember seeing her in. She mm-hmm. plays like the, the one like lady pirate, mm-hmm. and she's in Steven Spielberg's The Terminal. I honestly don't remember her in that. Presumably, she works at the airport because it's The Terminal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's set in the airport, so a few people that don't work there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 2009 would be her year Uh, because the production of Avatar was so lengthy. She was actually cast in another iconic role before the film was ever released. Uh, In J.J. Abrams' reboot of Star Trek, Saldana portrayed the Enterprise's communications officer, Uhura. That film would be released in May of 2009, some seven months before Avatar. So basically, she gets cast in Avatar. She films Avatar. It takes them so long to do the 
post-production on Avatar that she makes an entire fucking Star Trek movie and that movie comes out and it's still another seven months before Avatar comes out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And of course, after Avatar, she was also cast as Gamora in Guardians of the Galaxy for uh, James Gunn. And thanks to Avatar and thanks to her role as Gamora because of she's in a couple of Avengers movies, uh, she is now the second highest grossing actress of all time. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know who number one is? Who? Scar Joe. Also uh, because of all the Marvel movies she's in. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Be- makes not sense. because yeah. of like Ghost World. Uh, for what it's, it's worth, I saw that uh, Chris Pine and Chris Pratt both auditioned for Jake Sully. Did um, they? Yeah. That makes but, sense. I mean, I, for some reason. I think that Chris Pratt would have actually been better. Um, but... We'll get, there, to, we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. We'll, we'll get to that. Also, sorry, Todd, for stepping all over your segment, but we, it's we, okay, can't, man. we can't talk about the co- the casting of Zoe Saldana without talking about Star Trek a little bit, you know, yeah, especially because it came out the same year as this. Yeah. So anyway, talk, speaking of the leading man, Jake Sully, Cameron cast an unknown Australian actor, or at least unknown here, Australian actor named Sam Worthington. So after a handful of small roles, Worthington first became noticed in Australia in a 2004 film called Somersault, which was a well-reviewed romantic drama that ended up winning every single fe- every single feature film award at the 2004 Australian Film Institute Awards. Wow. Uh, and the film got Worthington noticed by Hollywood after it screened at the Cannes Film Festival and even landed Worthington on the short list of actors being considered for the role of James Bond before Daniel Craig got cast. In 2007, he starred in uh, the first movie that I actually ever saw Worthington in, which was an Australian creature feature called Rogue about a giant killer crocodile that was directed by uh, Greg McLean, who's best known for directing Wolf Creek. Rogue is awesome, by the way. I remember Wolf Creek, but yeah, that's cool. Yeah, well, I think Wolf Creek's pretty good. Um, I, I didn't love it as much as a lot of people did at the time. I think Rogue is incredible, though. I think it's a great creature feature. And it is I think, a lot of fun. And I think Sam Worthington's actually very good in it. Uh, when he auditioned for the role of Jake Sully, uh, Worthington actually had no idea that he was auditioning to play the lead in a James Cameron action film. They didn't tell him what he was reading for. Uh, the audition was on tape, so Cameron wasn't there. And he says that he assumed it was just another waste of time project. That's what he was used to getting in Australia. Uh, but his indifference during the audition actually helped him get the part. Uh, Cameron watched him and he he came across as this sort of hardened insular tough guy, like this guy who's just like been beat up by life and is angry at the world, which worked for the role he was going for. I think he was like living out of his car at the time. So that's probably part of uh, what, what helped him. <laughs> right, yeah, probably. <laughs> he also said he thought it was a big waste of time. Uh, like he said, cause he didn't know who even this was. For yeah. He didn't he had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, supposedly Cameron loved his delivery of the line. This is our land. And then, yeah, anyway, but yeah. And, uh, but Cameron did say that he sounded like crocodile Dundee. Those are Cameron's words. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he had him work with an acting coach to train him to speak in an American accent. Uh, then he flew him in for a series of auditions over the course of like six months. He's flying, he's flying Worthington over to America to, to audition over the course of six months over and over. Worthington says it was easier to learn Navi than to get that American accent down. Um, you're better at speaking Navi than you are than an American accent. <laughs> 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 well, again, we'll get to that in a minute. Todd is Todd is ready to just. <laughs> oh well, Fox naturally did not want Worthington just, because he just, wasn't a big name. Just to let you know, this is the first time I've made notes on a film. In a long, long time. 
Well, I can't we'll, wait. To, I can't wait to get. To we'll this. get there. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> Fox wanted uh, some bigger names like Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal, Matt Damon. They, those were kind of the, some of the names they were floating. They both passed on the project. Uh, but it was actually the way that Worthington played the scene towards the end of the film where Jake rallies a group of Navi into battle that won the studio over. They saw the footage of him doing that and they saw what Cameron saw in him. And just the simple act of being cast in a new James Cameron film was enough to make Worthington a star overnight before the movie ever even comes out. Uh, it wouldn't be long before he was cast in another big franchise, one that, oddly enough, ha also has a connection to James Cameron. Uh, in Terminator Salvation, Worthington starred as a human-Terminator hybrid opposite Christian Bale, who played John Connor. That film was released in May of 2009, two weeks after J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, but still many months before Avatar would be released. So just like Zoe Saldana, he gets cast in another movie because of Avatar, films a whole other movie, it comes out, and then we've still got to wait on Avatar to come out. So. <laughs> and it was really a chance to show James Cameron what's up because he created like the best Terminator film um, yeah, you know, mm. and uh, surpass James Cameron. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it yeah. is the it is the best Terminator film directed by McG. <laughs> and I love Christian Bale as John O'Connor. <laughs> he would actually probably do a pretty good accent, honestly. He probably would. <laughs> Avatar's cast was rounded out by Sigourney Weaver, working with Cameron for the first time since Aliens, uh, as Doctor Grace Augustine. Uh, her her name was originally. Something like Sipley Shipley. It was Dr. Grace Shipley was her character's name originally. And James Cameron, like, it's like, you can't play Ripley and Shipley. We got to change the name. <laughs> so they changed the name. Uh, he, swears, he says they were like friends for like since 1986. They were yeah. like always good friends. They just never could land on something until this role. Yeah. Uh, which was just interesting to me. And uh, he looked at it as like, oh, now you get to do the other side of this. You're the invaders. You're the yeah, aliens. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, Michelle Rodriguez was cast as Trudy. Uh, Giovanni Ribisi played Parker Selfridge, who was this sort of corporate scumbag who shares a lot of DNA, I think, with Paul Reiser's character from Aliens. Mm. I mean, they're definitely cut from the same cloth. Uh, Joel David Moore as Norm Spellman. We know him, of course, from The Hatchet right oh that's yeah what, that's what yeah. i know him from <laughs> no that's what i know him from too he, he i think he does a lot of movies with uh what's his face uh yeah adam green yeah adam green yeah uh one of my favorite character actors cch pounder played moat natiri's mother i'm a huge fan of cch pounder mostly because of her work on the shield but i just love her as an actress oh, yeah. and her name uh, and it's a great name uh west studi plays natiri's father and of course stephen lang plays the film's main villain, Colonel Miles Quayrich. Quayrich? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I think it's something like that. But God bless Stephen Lang. Uh, God, he's so good, man. He he had actually auditioned for a role in Aliens, like, you know, a couple decades earlier, but did not get the part. He was uh, obviously auditioning for one of the Marines. Uh, but Cameron actually remembered him and sought him out for Avatar. He remembered him 20 years later and, like, reached out to him to, for this role. Uh, and But actually, before Lang was cast, Michael Bean was briefly considered for the role. He huh. actually, he read the script and everything, but they ended up not going in that direction. I would have put him in the movie anyway, but, um, but you can't, it, Stephen Lang, I mean, let me take a moment to be gay for just a second. That guy's got the Sam Elliott uh, he does disorder that, yeah. where it's just like it's not a disorder it's a superpower it's yeah. a superpower <laughs> right? it's just like the guy's like 70 years old and just beautiful yeah just, and and just like everything he says sounds so fucking cool yeah and, just, and not just the, i mean it's his voice but it's also his his charisma and delivery like everything he does just like like i know i'm not supposed to like this guy because he's a real asshole but 
He's the coolest fucking character in the whole movie. Super, <laughs> super watchable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really is. Uh, I mean, this it, it's weird because I not I don't know that I knew Stephen Lang before. I don't think I knew him. I mean, like, obviously as he had an a, actor. Like he I had just... a long career before this, but this was the first thing that put him on the map for me. Of course, he does "Don't Breathe" not long after this, probably as a result of this. Right. Uh, but I mean, I, I think he's. I, I now I I get excited every time I see. I was him about to say now I notice his name yeah. pop up in places, but yeah, I probably had no idea who yeah. was. I don't. Before. I don't think I did. Well, Todd, I already spoiled one of your your Star <laughs> Trek characters, but everyone knows Zoe Saldana is in Star Trek, so that's not yeah. really a big revelation to anyone. Yeah. Uh, but did you find any others? Actually, quite a few. Yeah, we've got uh, Deborah Wilson as uh, Troop. Uh, she goes by Deborah Skelton in this. Uh, she was in Star Trek: The Experience, the Klingon encounter in 1998 as a security what officer. Is, what the fuck is what that? that? What is, I think what that, even is that? That might have been part of the Las Vegas show, but okay. there was a, there was a film element to it. I think okay. uh, she was also in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, season six, episode 25, "The Sound of Her Voice" from 1998. She was also in two episodes of Star Trek: Prodigy. If the name Deborah Wilson sounds familiar, that's because she was in all 201 episodes of mad tv from 1995 to 2016 i gotta look up her what she looks like oh yeah you'll see her and be like oh her oh Oh, yeah her yeah yeah Yeah, she's great yeah then we got uh iram Choi. i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly uh he's one of the avatars playing basketball he uh did some stunt work on star trek in 2009 uh he was a stunt double for john cho and then he would also do some stunts in into darkness in 2013 mm-hmm. then we got janelle kerfman uh she's another she's the other basketball playing avatar who did uh stunts on star trek into darkness and we got peter mensa as one of the as the horse clan leader he did two episodes of star trek enterprise season four episodes 20 and 21 that's terra prime and demons uh which we will be discussing on an upcoming episode of the computer resume podcast with special guest mr gary horn hey hey that's me yeah and then we've got john curry as suit number two i think that's one of the guys that tells sam worthington his brother's dead uh he was in star trek lower decks uh season two episode nine wedge douge is that the Uh, animated show it is Mm. and it is a it is an amazing show i won't get on my lower deck (laughs) soapbox here but it's great (laughs) it is a lot of fun yeah then we've got scott lawrence as venture star crew chief he was in star trek voyager season seven episode 14 the void Star Trek Away Team, the 2001 video game, and Star Trek Into Darkness. We've got a lot of uh, the Kelvin timeline in this uh, in this episode. Makes sense considering the when this yeah. was made. Yeah, yeah the exactly. Time and uh, then we've got Sigourney Weaver, and you're thinking, oh, Sigourney Weaver wasn't in Star Trek. However, she was in Galaxy Quest in 1999, which <laughs> by all Star Trek fans is regarded as the best other star trek film so maybe the best star trek film arguably arguably (laughs) (laughs) and then like uh we've already pointed out since 2009 zoe saldana has played lieutenant uhura uh in uh three movies one video game and as of this recording a rumored untitled fourth kelvin timeline sequel so, yeah, we'll, we'll see if that happens. Yep, we'll see what that happens. <laughs> and that's everybody in Star Trek. Wow, bum, thank bum. you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. 
Well, over years of development on the film, Cameron worked with a handful of designers to help create the look of Pandora and the Navi. When he felt that the 3D renderings weren't capturing his vision, he called upon folks like Wayne Barlow and Jordu Shell to help refine the concept of characters and creatures. Now, Barlow and Shell aren't exactly like household names. I don't think a lot of people heard me say their name and went like, oh, yeah, Wayne Barlow. Uh, but, <laughs> but both are considered some of the best in their field. So Barlow is a famed fantasy illustrator who's illustrated over 300 book and magazine covers, but he's also done a lot of concept art for films. He's worked uh, especially close with Guillermo del Toro, which I, I don't know for sure, but I have to imagine that's how he came into contact with James Cameron. Uh, he was the creature designer on uh, both of del Toro's Hellboy films. And you know how incredible the creatures are in those, especially in part two uh, blade two, uh, as well as the head creature designer on Pacific Rim. Uh, he's also worked on a couple of Harry Potter movies. He worked on James uh, Wan's Aquaman, and he's currently serving as the creature designer on Am- Amazon's brand new Lord of the Rings series. Cool. Jordu Shell, on the other hand, has worked much more extensively in film, almost exclusively in film, as a sculptor and concept artist. Uh, he actually got his start. His very first film was Bride of Reanimator, mm. which I adore that movie. And we talked about it on the old show. <laughs> With, uh, with JP, our buddy JP, who's been on your show several times. We talked oh, about yes. Bride of Reanimator. Uh, but he was a creature designer on there, presumably designing the bride or herself. Uh, but from there, he went on to work with Stan Winston on several films, including Predator 2, Edward Scissorhands, and Batman Returns. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, look up Jordu Shell's IMDb. It's, it is insane the movies that he's worked on. I, I stopped at the Stan Winston stuff because I didn't want to list like 50 other movies, but it's his work is incredible. And a lot of the work that Cameron did with these designers actually took place in the kitchen of his home in Malibu. Uh, they, they would like have like j- kind of like designer jam sessions there. And, uh, and, and you can actually see if you have the Blu-ray of Avatar, there is footage of George Shell sculpting the characters in 3D, like out of clay. Uh, like the Navi, uh, you see him sculpting Natiri. It's it's incredible work, and it really helps them to get a full vision of what the character is going to look like in motion. And uh, although he is uncredited on the film, Stan Winston actually helped with some of the film's designs as well. Uh, although he would unfortunately pass away before the film was released, succumbing to a years-long battle with cancer. He died uh, just a, a year or two before Avatar came out. Thank you, Stan. Yeah, he's he's the I, literally like the best the, the business has ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> as far as creature design. In a unique move for a feature film, Cameron actually hired two separate production designers. Uh, Rick Carter would be responsible for the flora and fauna of Pandora, while Robert Stromberg would focus on the human machines and facilities. And I, I really like that approach. I think that's really that cool. makes sense. Because they shouldn't look anything like each other. Right. They should feel completely separate. They should feel really like the human stuff is an encroachment on the Pandora stuff. Mm. And I think they do a good job with that. On a purely technical level, Avatar was going to be the most ambitious film James Cameron has ever directed. And he needed the right partners to help make that happen. So he hired uh, the mocap company, Giant Studios. Uh, They had worked with Gore Verbinski on the Pirates of the Caribbean movies where they created, you know, like the Davy Jones character. And he signed on Weta Digital, the company responsible for creating Golem, for the film's digital effects. Now, I'm not going to go into this big history of Weta Digital because I'll probably save that for when we do a Peter Jackson series down the line. Uh, uh, but Weta Digital was, just to say briefly, it was founded by 
Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor in the late 1980s. Uh, they, I mean, they created, it wasn't what a digital at the time, it was just what a workshop, but they created like the special effects for Cameron's first, or for, excuse me, for Peter Jackson's first movies. And the digital aspect came into play in Heavenly Creatures, which was actually Kate Winslet's first film. We, we mentioned it briefly on our Titanic episode. Oh, yeah. And then of course they did The Frighteners and then Lord of the Rings. The production on Avatar uh, could not have been further away from what Cameron had done on Titanic. Uh, on that film, you remember he built these this enormous, highly detailed, period accurate sets and a practically a full sized replica of the Titanic. But on Avatar, a lot of the shoot was done in those same kind of sparse, nearly empty warehouses, like where he shot that that test footage, uh, where the only sets were gray painted triangles and polygons and the occasional tree that they would move around to create topography for the actors to play off of. Very weird looking to, to watch some of this footage being shot when you just watch like hours of footage of Titanic being shot. Like I have mm. uh, and then to watch this and you're like, it's, it had to feel like whiplash for James. Cameron, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Considering how all in he went on Titanic for right. Yeah. Sets. yeah, exactly. And instead of elaborate costumes, like those in Titanic, the actors in avatar found themselves wearing those skin tight, like body suits covered in small reflective markers that would be recognized by the 102 cameras that were mounted in the warehouse's ceiling. And these aren't like your typical film cameras. These are basically picking up the light, not like filming. They're not filming. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't know how else to describe that, but, Mm -hmm. and then on their, their heads, they would wear those skull caps with the boom cameras that he had dreamed up pointing directly at their faces. It's like, they're more like sensors rather than cameras. They really are. I mean, they're they're kind of more sensors, but they're picking up light, which is essentially what a camera does. Right, right, right. Well, and like one of the mistakes, so like the mistake of the earlier iterations with like the facial stuff was that normally when you do that kind of thing for motion capture, you just put all those like balls on your body, which sounds like a movie Justin's mom does. But there it is. Balls. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so they, so we'll call it sphere markers. So they put the, they, they, they glue all those like little sphere it, markers. It looks like ping pong balls all over somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but you never like see anybody glue them on the actor's face or anything, um, or like down their gullet or whatever. But to make a face look real, well, you got like so you got like 200 muscles in your body, half of them are in your face. And as far as we know, nobody was gluing them to the, the actor's eyeballs or down their gullet or whatever. So Cameron invented this whole like different approach, which was this like it's like 100 plus cameras on a head rig that are photographing the actor's face in close-up 100% of the time while they're working. Uh, so without getting any more technical than that, now instead of some camera off in the distance, just trying to catch the best you can in the face, this thing is locked only to record head data the yeah, whole time. It's, and it's literally like eight or 10 inches from the actor's face in like a very wide lens so that it can capture everything. It's very, a very unflattering image of the actor, honestly, from that <laughs> angle. But now it can track your eyes, the edges of your face, like everything, like just like just as the, though you had like individual markers glued all over different points in your face, like it was just covered. But that's how it worked, and that's that's one of the cooler parts of this movie, honestly. Yeah. Well, obviously, shooting in an environment like this, when your character is supposed to be in the most like lush rainforest anyone's ever seen. Uh, This took some imagination on the parts of the actors. So to give them an idea of what the final film would look like and what it would feel like to be there, to be on the, in the rainforest of Pandora, uh, Cameron actually took his 
actors to Hawaii to the rainforest and he shot reference footage that they could use as sort of sense memory once they returned to this this warehouse. Uh, nice. I mean, they were like, they were in the, they were in like living in the rainforest for like three or four days and they're in costume, which means that like Zoe Saldana is half naked running around in the woods. And there are still like tourists in Hawaii <laughs> that ran across them. And, and Sam Worthington, I remember uh, he, he tells a story at one point where people were like, they saw him running by with like a sword or a bow and arrow or something. And they're like, what the fuck's going on? He's like, we're making a movie. <laughs> 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 like, all right, sure, sure, buddy, sure you are. <laughs> well, so like if, if an explosion, when they're back in the warehouse, if if there's something like an explosion that's supposed to be happening in the scene, Cameron would play a loud noise over the speakers uh, to kind of get that reaction out of people and throw pieces of foam at them, or he'd whack them with a padded jousting pole. Uh, it, it's incredibly silly looking, honestly. <laughs> uh, like for a scene where Natiri is writing a banshee, Zoe Saldana sat on a hobby horse sitting on a gimbal that's just being rocked back and forth by grips. Uh, now they, I mean, they did put a lot of thought into how they're filming these. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, they would, they would definitely like, they, they put a lot of thought into, you know, if the Banshee's turning this way, how do you counterbalance that? If you're actually like writing it, you know, uh, for, for one scene, they had a stunt double piggybacking on the back of a 300 pound Samoan who would run around the stage. So that's, this is the kind of weird stuff they're shooting. It, it, probably looked like some postmodern like theater production if you were to witness it not knowing what the hell is going on <laughs> they would do things like uh to to approximate pandora's slippery moss covered floors cameron would put plastic sheets on the warehouse floor to kind of force the actors to walk a little more gingerly uh in a scene where a group of navi children i really liked uh, th this little antidote uh where these navi children are supposed to follow jake sully like Pied Piper style, you know, Cameron taped a word to Worthington's chest. Uh, it was always a word that a seven-year-old would find hilarious, like butt face or something, you know, they'd put that on his chest and then Worthington would hide it from the kids. He's like, put his hand over it, hide it uh, while on the stage. And then they would change the word on every take. So when they would shoot it, the kids would kind of run after Worthington, kind of giggling, trying to figure out what the word was and <laughs> until they got the take that Cameron wanted. <laughs> For some scenes that were a combination of live action and CG, Cameron used yet another new piece of technology that he'd helped develop called the Simulcam. The Simulcam is a fusion of a real and virtual camera, which can superimpose actors into virtual environments. Uh, so this allowed Cameron to shoot regular actors, not people doing you know motion capture, but regular actors in the exotic world of Pandora. So he might have his actors in a fully built helicopter on a soundstage or a partially built helicopter or that what they call the amp suits, the AMP suits. Mm. But you know, when viewed through the simulcam, he could see Pandora's like floating mountains outside their window uh, through his little monitor. This technology also allowed Cameron, who you know is always the perfectionist, to incessantly tinker with his scenes because he could go back and reshoot the scenes endlessly from any angle he wanted until he got it just perfect. So mm -hmm. you can just imagine a perfectionist like Cameron, how, how many times he's going over these scenes to get them just right. You know, yeah. if that style of filmmaking was vastly different from Titanic, so was the feeling on set. Cameron had mellowed a lot in the years since making Titanic. Thanks in a large part 
to the experience he'd had on his deep sea expeditions. Uh, and working in that warehouse in Playa Vista in Los Angeles, he had a, a small tight knit crew, not unlike those that he'd led on the Keldish when he was doing his deep sea expeditions. Uh, he would say, you're talking about his, his new directing style. He would say, I have my bad days and on my best days, I'm no Ron Howard, but I tried to bring a new spirit of leadership. So he's, he's definitely like no longer that dictator that he'd kind of been seen as on Titanic and the abyss and aliens. Well, one of the things I wondered about too, is like when you get to a movie like avatar, it's like at a certain point, how do you not get so obsessed with the technology that you lose the soul of the movie, you know, Uh, because with this being what it is versus like Titanic, you can make shit look as real as you want to, but without the actors nailing it, it's not going to really work. Um, So I actually found a quote from him talking about this, where he was asked about it. And, uh, and he said, uh, quote, I think that's the biggest challenge of this type of film from a director's perspective is to not get so absorbed in the nuts and bolts of the process that you don't pay attention to your actors. The funny thing that I've found with this kind of performance capture stuff that we did on this film is that actually sort of, it takes all of that away in a sense. So it's just me and the actors. There's no lights, no cameras, no dollies, none of that stuff. None of the normal stuff on a film set that would distract me and keep me busy setting up a shot. I'm just working directly with the actor. So you're always dealing kind of with the heart of the movie every single day. Uh, then later, once we're done with the actors, then you can work on all the visual effects and you fill in the scene around them. Yeah, he doesn't have to wait like an hour and a half for them to move a light, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's there's a lot more spontaneity to it, oddly enough. Yeah, it's, 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 it sounds like it's opposite of what you would think about it, but it's right. uh, just kind of interesting. Uh, the bulk of the work on Avatar was done not on sound stages, but in dark viewing rooms where Cameron, back in Los Angeles, would teleconference with the artists at Weta Digital who were based in Wellington, New Zealand. So there's a lot of back and forth between Cameron and Weta o- over the two plus years that the CGI on the film was being worked on. Uh, and, and we know Cameron is, as we, you know, we've discussed on many episodes, uh, he's pretty intense and he's incredibly detail oriented. And in the case of Avatar, he had seen these images in his head for 30 years. So he, he's very specific about how he wants these, these creatures to look, these characters to look, this, this, uh, this planet to look. Like down to, you know, the coloring on the wings of the banshees. Like very, very, what you would think is nitpicky stuff, but it's stuff that helps make this seem real Mm. uh he would tweak shots here and there you know let's let's take this cliff away let's make this horse a little shinier let's make these flowers a little translucent no detail was too small they they, i mean they they spent hours getting the alien sap to drip just right like you know like he he is that much of a perfectionist let's put tits on the avatars they gotta have them well, no, they don't have to have them. That's the funny part is like on Inside the Actor's Studio, James Cameron's on there and James Lipton straight up asking, he says that Navi are non-mammals who have no use for nipples to breastfeed, let alone perfectly digitally rendered boobs. Uh, why do the Navi who don't even need genitals have breasts? But and- they uh, they have hair, so that doesn't make them a mammal. I guess uh, because they just reproduce like uh, without genitals, like through their hair thing. I don't know. It's a, it says Do they uh, lay eggs. I don't. I don't know. That that's what I was curious about because Cameron. It says uh, I, I was reading a transcript of it, and he says because this is a movie for human people. 
And he says, let's, let's focus on the things that can create otherness that are not off-putting. Um, he said, right from the beginning, I said, she's got to have tits, even though it makes no sense because her race, the Navi, aren't placental mammals. Hmm. And I, I thought that was interesting. I don't know. I guess it never goes in too much uh like how the birth happens i i suppose but yeah interesting but whatever well, i'm anyway. sure maybe he'll expand upon it in avatar too. i we'll hope a, so i we'll have a nice just, uh, yeah. birthing scene <laughs> well you can go to Pornhub, and somebody else has already expanded on it a little oh bit, yeah but... oh i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> okay so now we're all thinking about uh avatar porn parody names yeah what mm. you got oh gosh uh Asatar? No, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's I mean, that's some that's, <laughs> that's some low hanging fruit. Um, yeah, mm. it doesn't matter. Yeah, get back uh, to me. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter at Mister. <laughs> well, post production on the film would be a pretty lengthy process, as we've already mentioned. Uh, Cameron was uh, once again, as he had been on Titanic, a full fledged member of the editing team. Here, uh, he brought James Horner back on to compose the film's music, which became a combination of ethereal choirs and ethnic instruments. I really like the score to this movie. I think James Horner does some some really good stuff. There is a motif that he has. Is like I think it's like his kind of love motif for Natiri and Jake that has a couple of notes that almost sound like it's going to be the Titanic theme. Uh, it, it like a couple of notes and then it goes in a different direction, but it's a really great score. I think once the film was complete, a new challenge emerged, which was how do you market a movie that's so unlike anything else audiences have ever seen one that's got no built-in fan base because it's not based on any pre-existing property. That's where Fox found themselves. Well, the first time audiences got a look at any footage from Avatar came in July of 2009 when 25 minutes of the film were screened for audiences at San Diego's Comic-Con uh, in Hall H. You know, they retrofitted it with 3D projectors and everything. And from the Comic-Con stage, Cameron announced that August 21st would be Avatar Day. This was John Landau's idea, actually, the Avatar Day thing. And at on Avatar Day, Fox would debut the film's trailer and 131 IMAX theaters across the country would screen 16 minutes of selected 3D scenes for free, while another 3D, uh, excuse me, while another 300 screens showed it internationally. So they're, this, that, that's kind of unprecedented. It's a pretty cool idea, but it builds hype. But when the trailer debuted online, you know, it quickly became the most downloaded trailer on Apple.com, which is where we used to have to go to download movie trailers before YouTube was a thing. Do you guys remember right, that? Right. Go oh, to Apple.com yeah. or go on an iTunes <laughs> or something and download sure. the trailers. Uh, but of course, this was still the internet, even in the early days of the internet. So not all the reactions to the trailer were great. Uh, some folks were comparing the Navi to Jar Jar Binks. Others were joking that they looked like the Thundercats. There were, of course, a lot of Smurf jokes. Uh, but Cameron had dealt with he had dealt with that kind of backlash before on Titanic. Only back then, it was the mainstream media outlets like Variety and Entertainment Tonight that were snickering about his film. This time, it was online bloggers and people in the comments sections of, of sites like Ain't It Cool News. Mm-hmm. Luckily for us, the internet has vastly improved since 2009, right, Gary? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean <laughs> now, like everybody's at peace with everything in the world. And uh, well read, well slept. Nobody <laughs> needs a nap. And that's the end of that segment. Oh, <laughs> 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 you know somebody need a nap.
Uh, let's see. Uh, how about this guy? Uh, this is uh, Aliens Bishop. Oh, it's Lance, Lance Hendrickson. It's Lance Hendrickson. Oh. Uh, review is uh, one out of 10. Money plus technology equals garbage. With a budget like this, you would think that at the very least, bas- basic elements of a decent film should not be lacking. Well-written story, passable dialogue, above-par actors, etc., etc. I feel like I said that wrong. I don't know. Anyway, well, welcome to Hollywood. Those things have been relegated to the past. No worrying about where that clever plot twist will lead or that enigmatic character or those subtle hits and ticks in the dialogue that aren't in your face obvious. Avatar blazes a new trail to where money and technology apparently rut for days, then pop out a bouncing baby masterpiece. Rad. Where to begin? Stream of consciousness, associative just thinking might get it over with the quickest. Fergalian space, minus Tim Curry's voice, dances with wolves, only worse, and smurfs without believable characters like Gargamel and his cat come immediately to the fore. Pastel overdur- overdose. Unobtainium! <laughs> All caps, lots of exclamation points. That guy needs a nap just for how hard it was for me to read that review, apparently. <laughs> This one, uh, Steven gets a, a shout out here because his review is titled Avatrash. Ah, well done. Nice. I like it. <laughs> uh, what a waste of money, energy, creativity, and intelligence. Never before in the history of mankind were we presented with such an enormous pile of dog disguised as a beautiful and lovely rose. And most people, or sheep, bought it. Have people here lost their minds? Best movie of 2010? Don't we need a story to really feel a movie? to connect to characters being presented, to stimulate our brain, our intelligence. This story was a complete ripoff of better movies with better stories. I feel insulted as a moviegoer. Give me my money back. There, I just had to crap. I feel better now. (laughs) How about this half star from Jane who says, LMAO, lots of O's there. Age like milk, not sure if the next adventure in wasted studio money will arrive in my lifetime, and I truly do not care. Here is my New York Post headline for it. Quote, man trashes entire 40-year legacy with white dreadlock furry fantasy. (laughs) That's that's pretty funny, honestly. (laughs) Here's uh, Thomas who says, uh, half star, I wish they were orange. (laughs) Then there'd be a lot of Garfield jokes. Mm. Uh, Brogan gives it a half star. He said, "If I could physically harm a film violently, this would be the one." I hate every single inch of it. How it's the highest-grossing film of all time just astounds me. As why would anyone want to watch this film more than one time? Half star by Spooky Dookie Doo, <laughs> who also starts to review it. Dog shit movie. Anyone who says they like this story is terminally insane. It's nice to look at, and that's because James Cameron's old ass somehow convinced an executive to give him a trillion dollars to animate blue people making sweet love in a fantasy forest. And one more. Here's Nathan Halfstar. This movie killed my family. I pay for (laughs) weekly therapy because I watched this movie. This movie is the devil. I am going to kill everyone who likes this movie. Oh, we shouldn't notify the FBI. (laughs) <laughs> I am very excited for Way of the Water. <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's all of them. Yeah, those um, were not nearly as mean as I expected them to be. I'm well, honest. I mean, I was going to say 
Do you want me to go ahead and read what I wrote? Because it sounds well, like I was about to say that the tough part, to. the tough part is this like people that hated on this movie the most, like wrote like paragraphs. I gave yeah. myself one of yeah. like the big long reviews. I was trying to get to the succinct, like interesting stuff. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. And I was I was curious because that one also was like really on the environmental thing. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, like with that whole thing, it's like I get it, but sci-fi is supposed to be used for this kind of stuff. And I've seen him talk about it in interviews that it's like sci-fi can discuss things like environmentalism and that sort of thing. But uh the good part is you can do it without being too preachy. Although there are some interesting like little Easter eggs in Avatar. Uh, that we haven't talked about yet that are uh, kind of funny, but they're that do seem to place blame on someone. But, um, but with the expense of the movie, I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, well, you know, there's people starving and yeah, I guess you get like however many million dollars to make a movie, but he kind of justifies that kind of expense saying that he's providing jobs for all of the crew actors, yeah, thousands like of people. people. Yeah. And uh, especially at the time it was an economic downturn and, uh, uh, Hollywood was even threatening like no more blockbusters and everything. But Cameron was like, I mean, he believes the exact opposite of that. He's like, uh, TV and internet's taking away all the smaller stuff. It's harder to get an indie movie made. He's like, the reason people are going to get off their ass and go to a theater is for spectacle. And yeah. uh, he said, so the way Hollywood can survive is believing in investing in big ideas and, you know, just these huge things. That's what is, people want to see. Which is honestly kind of the direction that it's gone in yeah in the year since avatar mm-hmm. well that july so as the film was nearly completed cameron had a conference at the lightstorm offices which included a botanist a physicist sci-fi and archaeology writer charles pellegrino screenwriter uh leta calagridis if i'm saying her name correctly she had helped actually shape the story of both avatar and alita with cameron she doesn't have like a written by credit on this but she she was sort of a co-screenwriter in the early stages of this uh and randall frakes they also had a journalist there by the name of dirk Mathiason, who was helping cameron create what he called the pandorapedia which is a thick manuscript about all the plants and creatures and properties of pandora that would be used for any sequels or ancillary property properties like uh like video games and things like that or so the at star this, wars universe basically yeah basically yeah yeah so at this little conference they would debate questions like what's the lifespan of a navi what is the atmosphere of pandora made of why does unobtainium float uh i guess like how how does uh how is a Navi born? Like we were just talking about, I'm sure that was <laughs> right. one of their, their questions. Mm. Uh, they were basically reverse engineering a mythology for the film, pondering the science behind every question, uh, which is kind of, kind of a cool way to do it. I mean, you could do that beforehand, but then you get stifled a little bit in your creativity, I think. So by, by reverse engineering it like that, I think it's uh, granted, you're going to be using now these rules for future sequels, but uh, you've already kind of created the world beforehand yeah i do like that though at least you get like creative freedom to like just go ahead and this is the stuff we think is important and And then we'll explain it yeah we'll figure out how to figure out how it works later yeah uh one thing that he never really explains in the film in the film which uh fox was kind of annoyed by honestly is unobtainium which is the precious resource that sends humans to pandora in the first place so when the film was released, uh, and I'm honestly surprised there weren't a lot of mentions of these in, in your reviews, Gary, but there were a lot of jokes made at the expense of the term 
unobtainium. But this is not a term that was conjured up by Cameron. It's a term that's been in it's been in use since at least the 1950s in engineering circles. It's been used to explain any material that's rare, costly, or difficult to obtain. Uh, here's how Cameron describes it. Unobtainium is beaver pelts in French colonial Canada. It's diamonds in South Africa. It's tea to the 19th century British. It's oil to 20th century America. It's just another in a long list of substances that cause one group of people to get into ships and go kick the shit out of another group of people to take what is growing on or buried under their ancestral lands. Uh, the way that Cameron describes it, unobtainium is kind of like a MacGuffin. You know, he likens it actually to the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It doesn't matter what it is. You don't need to know what it is or how it works. You just need to know that people are going to die for it. And al although it is uh, never explained in the film, the, the mythology that Cameron created for Avatar uh, actually explains that unobtainium's superconducting properties make it the key to cheap power back on Earth where all the oil has run out. So there is you know, reasoning behind it. They just don't feel the need to explain that during the course of the movie because it really doesn't matter. And in, in the plot wise, it doesn't matter. And you just know that like people, they need it and they need it enough that they're, they're willing to massacre an entire race to get it. Well, Avatar, like most uh, James Cameron's films was delayed in its release. Uh, during filming, the uh, the planned release date was May of 2009, but the film was pushed back so the filmmakers could have more post-production time and to allow more theaters to install the 3D projectors that would be needed to showcase it in the way that Cameron wanted it projected. And before the release, uh, film critics and fan communities predicted that the film would be a box office failure, uh, echoing predictions for Titanic. The criticism ranged from the film's budget, which capped out at a record-breaking $237 million, making it at the time, once again, the most expensive film ever made, uh, and also its reliance on 3D technology uh, to the design of its blue cat people. All of these things were being criticized by people who hadn't actually seen the film yet. But as we have said time and time again over the course of this series, you don't, you just don't bet against James Cameron. The guy just has, a, he, he somehow is just tapped into the cultural zeitgeist in a way that few filmmakers are. And when Avatar was finally released on December 18th, 2009 in the U.S., it quickly went on to dominate the box office. It earned $77 million its opening weekend, making it the second largest December opening of all time. And after five days, the film's worldwide gross was $241.6 million. Five, after five days in release, it's made a quarter of a billion dollars. It remained at the top of the box office for several weeks, it reached the $1 billion in box office revenue uh, mark after only 19 days in theaters. Wow. Which is how much we make to do this show. How long yeah. since I've done the show? It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, on January 31st, 2010, six weeks into its run, Avatar became the first film ever to earn $2 billion worldwide. It remained the number one movie at the domestic box office for seven consecutive weeks. That's the most consecutive number one weekends that any film had had since Titanic, which I think went for like 15 weeks. By the end of its first theatrical release, the film grossed a worldwide total of $2,749,640,328. It remains, as of this recording, the highest box office earner of all time. Now it's had a couple of re-releases. Uh, 
because it was beat at the box office, the all-time box office by Avengers Endgame. Then they re-released Avatar in theaters. Uh, <laughs> it made like an extra $21 million just in China during that re-release. So it's, <laughs> it, it is now, once again, the top grossing film of all time. So clearly, like, audiences connected with the film. Um, and yeah, I mean, people could always say that it's the ticket prices were higher because of the 3d pay a couple extra bucks, but a lot of other 3d movies came out after avatar and they weren't the highest grossing movies of all time. So that extra like $2 a ticket or whatever, isn't padding the numbers that much, Mm. but critics actually liked the film for the most part. The the film was generally, it generally received positive reviews. Uh, Roger Ebert actually gave it a perfect four out of four star saying, uh, quote, watching avatar. I felt this, I felt sort of the same as when I saw Star Wars in 1977. Uh, Richard Corliss, writing for Time Magazine, said the film was the most vivid and convincing creation of a fantasy world ever seen in the history of moving pictures. It's pretty high praise. Mm. So I have to ask you guys, Todd, I know you're you're chomping at the bit to give maybe, your opinion on this. Maybe Gary should go first. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. Sounds like Todd's got a rant. No, it does feel like that, um, yeah. <laughs> which Let's he see. doesn't do often. We go crack my knuckles and hit all caps. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, for me, like the movies, I, I feel the same way I felt uh, before. I feel like the movie's fine. Um, um, like I appreciate what it is. It looks looks amazing. It does, and uh, and there's lots to piece apart from it. I. I can't sit here and tell you I understand why it's the highest grossing film of all time. I don't know exactly what happened. What it is that connected with people so, so yeah. strongly. Especially when you go out in the real world. I swear to God, I talk to I talk to people and nobody ever talks about Avatar. Nobody nobody's thinking about Avatar. Nobody's like Anybody I've ever asked about Avatar has been like, "Oh yeah, I saw it. I think oh, I was. Uh, yeah, I saw it when I was in theaters. You know, like <laughs> they're not like it. Nobody's like obsessed with it. Yeah, anymore. like yeah. I don't know anybody who's obsessed with it. I know. I mean, when it came there, when it, when it but, came out, people were very obsessed with it. There were uh, reports of people who like experienced depression and suicidal thoughts after seeing the film because they could not live on Pandora. Like this, this actually happened. Now, this wasn't like a widespread thing, but there was a uh, fan forum site called Avatar Forums, and there was a a thread, a topic thread called "Ways to Cope with the Depression of the Dream of Pandora Being Intangible." <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> and it was just about it, they had like a thousand posts of people who were, were depressed because they couldn't cope with the fact that they could not live on Pandora. I mean, I suppose that. I, I mean, I, I definitely do believe that. I suppose that no matter what you do, there's going to be like some kind of niche audience that's going to like find it. And but a niche thing, audience doesn't equal two billion dollars, right? Well, yeah, but I, I also don't think that all those two billion dollars came from people that were going to kill themselves because they couldn't live on Pandora, right? And so <laughs> it's like uh, it's just a weird thing, and um, I don't know because. You know, you clearly get the idea that he's he's trying to finally achieve Star Wars. And right. I don't know. I'm not saying it can't happen. But I don't think that it uh it achieved that already. You know what I mean? Like in the public consciousness, I think if you tried to say like his avatar is big as Star Wars, people would be like, what the fuck? 
what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> um, so why would you even ask that? Yeah, like why is that a question? Like it's it, nobody's thinking about it as much as they think of Star Wars. Right. And uh so it's just it's just weird. I will say this though, um maybe this is I don't know. I'm just gonna go ahead and do this. Um that quote I gave earlier about the tits, it came because this girl named Valerie Ettenhofer, like literally a month, uh, a little, a few months ago, had this post from the Playboy interview that James Cameron did. And I think this is where James Lipton got his quote from. And I thought this was really interesting. And I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm just going to read uh, a little segment of it real quick. Just because it's, it's weird. She had put it up here. She was like, this is odd, but, uh, she said, uh, so Playboy asked, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, in your film, Aliens, is a powerful sex icon, and you may have created another in Avatar with a barely-dressed, blue-skinned, 10-foot-tall warrior who fiercely defends herself with the creatures and the creatures of her planet. Even without state-of-the-art special effects, Zoe Saldana, who voices the m- models, voices and models the character for CG morphing, is hot. Cameron says, let's be clear. There is a classification above hot, which is smoking hot. She is smoking hot. And Playboy <laughs> says, did any of your teenage erotic icons inspire the character Saldana plays? He says, as a young kid, when I saw Raquel Welch in that skin-tight white latex suit in Fantastic Voyage, that's all she wrote. Also, Vampirilla was so hot, I used to buy every comic I could get my hands on. The fact she didn't exist didn't bother me because we have these quintessential female images in our mind. And in the case of the male mind, they're grossly distorted. But you see something that reflects your id, it works for you. Playboy says, so Saldana's character was specifically designed to appeal to guys' ids. And Cameron says, and they won't be able to control themselves. They will have actual lust for this character that consists of pixels and ones and zeros. You're never going to meet her. And if you did, she's 10 feet tall and she would snap your spine. The point is 99.9% of the movie or percent of the people aren't going to meet any of the movie actresses they fall in love with. So it doesn't matter if it's Natiri or Michelle Pfeiffer. Hey, uh, Playboy says we need to, we seem to need fantasy icons like Lara Croft and Wonder Woman, despite knowing they mess with our heads. Cameron says most of men's problems with women probably have to do with realizing women are real. And most of them don't look or act like Vampirilla. A big recalibration happens when we're forced to deal with real women and there's a certain geek population that would much rather deal with fantasy women than real women. Let's face it. Real women are complicated. You can try your whole life and not understand them. And Playboy says, how much did you get into calibrating your movie heroine's hotness? Cameron says, right from the beginning, I said, she's got to have tits. Even though that makes no sense because of her race, the Navi aren't placental mammals. I designed her costumes based on... Uh, Taparabo, a loincloth thing worn by Mayan Indians. We go to another planet in this movie, so it would be stupid if she ran around in a Brazilian thong or a fur bikini like Raquel Welch in 1 million BC. Um, and then one last thing, he says, uh, Playboy says, are, are, are her breasts on view? And Cameron says, I came up with this free-floating lion's mane like a ray of feathers, and we strategically lit and angled shots to not draw attention to her breasts, but they're right there. The animation uses a physics-based sim that takes into consideration gravity, air movement, and the momentum of her hair, her top. We had a shot in which Nateri falls into a specific position, and because she is lit by orange firelight, it lights up her nipples. That was good. 
except we're going for a PG-13 rating, so we wound up having to fix that. We'll have to put it on the special edition. It will be a collector's item. An Atari Playboy centerfold would be a good idea. If Playboy <laughs> says, so you're okay with arousing PG-13 chubbies. And he says, if such a thing should happen, I'm not saying it will. That's fine. It's <laughs> the, the horniest filmmaker interview I've ever heard. I know. That's what I'm saying. This is on Playboy. She like posted, she like tweeted this stuff out. She said, I'm sure two people talked about this when it happened, but I didn't. So I am now. James Cameron's Playboy interview about Avatar is so deeply depressing. <laughs> and I, I would like to nominate the the line about arousing teenage chubbies at, for a for a new Cinema Shock t-shirt. I think <laughs> I don't teenage think chubbies. I don't think that yeah. that is not what we're trying to do on Cinema Shock. <laughs> but people piggybacked on this, by the way. I'm I'm going all over the place here, but I even remember like a Mercedes. Ben's advertisement at the time for like some kind of avatar car that they were going to make or something that happened. You can Google it. I <laughs> thought I remembered it and you can Google it. There's a picture and uh, well, it's, it's real weird. It was going to come out in 2020. I don't think that it ever did because I don't think so. I think I felt like I would have remembered that uh, Todd. Would, uh, what do you got to say? Well, <laughs> you clearly have some stuff to say now. I mean, I wrote this. Uh, two two things right off the bat. I wrote this before I read Justin's notes, and uh, I didn't. I I went based solely on my thoughts and feelings after watching this movie one time. After I saw it one time in the theater when it initially came out. So if you want, I can put on a super nerd voice and pretend to be like one of those people that need a nap and read my own review. Just read your own review. Okay. Wait, so wait, hold on. I need to clear, clarify this. All so right. you wrote this review recently based off earlier the one today. time, based off the one time you saw it when it first came out. No, no, no he watched it again the, for the yeah, show. Yeah, I watched it again for the show. Oh, okay. All right. So, so I've seen it a grand total of twice. I've watched it three times just in the last two weeks. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. I'll try to get through it as quick as I can. <clears throat> I don't hate this movie. I saw it in the theater in 2009, and my opinion has not changed. And I think that's a good thing. It's a good-looking movie. I don't think anyone would ever argue that it's not a good-looking movie. That being said, I'm going to focus on the three main things every good narrative needs. Characters, plot, and story. And if you got if you forgot the difference between those last two, plot is what happens, story is why it happens, aka the message. Let's begin with the easy one: story. Be nice to trees. Shouldn't take three hours. That's a 90-minute message at most. If you want to add respect to other people's land and culture, fine. That should still easily come in at an hour and a half. Let's move on to plot. More specifically, the plot holes that are big enough to drive one of those earth movers through. Why is unobtainium in such high demand? Is it ever stated in the film? No. However, it is stated that it's a room temperature superconductor mined on Pandora that makes manned interstellar space travel to the planet financially feasible. That definition comes from the book, James Cameron's Avatar, a confidential report on the biological and social history of Pandora, instead of being uttered in dialogue, you know, like a good script would. Which still begs the question, how'd you get there in the first place? Second plot hole, they brought tons of massive Earth-moving equipment five years across the galaxy. Did nobody think to drill into the unobtainium from underneath? At the beginning of the movie, we see that they already have this huge hole dug in the ground. Turn it into a tunnel. Lastly, the characters. I'm going to lump this in with performances. 
uh, because I think they both suffered in this movie by decisions that were made before the cameras even started to roll. The technology that was used in this movie to bring about the physical manifestations of these characters, not the characters as a whole, just the look, was the best. Brand new, top of the line. The, rest, the, uh, the result was an iconic creature with a familiar face, the effect of which splits your attention in two different directions. The new creature with a familiar face and voice makes my brain try to separate the two instead of marrying the two into a new creature with a familiar voice, which puts the audience at ease and allows them to connect easier. Example, Poe and Kung Fu Panda looks nothing like Jack, like Jack Black, but we immediately identify and sympathize. Uh, Jimmy should have cast a bunch of voice actors. We don't know them, most likely, and we can focus more on the character. Wait, can I pause for a second, though, Todd? At the sure. time that this movie was released, these were all unknown care, all, all unknown actors. I know. Like I said, I wrote this before I read your notes. <laughs> this combined with mostly lackluster performances is a recipe for failure. I don't buy Giovanni Ribisi as the slimy corporate guy. I'm surprised he didn't have a bandage on his nose for more people punching him out. You need someone a little more imposing, Bradley Cooper, Ben Affleck, etc. Most likable character is uh, Michelle Rodriguez, barely. Uh, this is far from Sigourney Weaver's best work. Zoe Saldana is swinging for the fences in every frame, but because of the technical ball and chain, we can't take in the full scope of her performance. Stephen Lang is the highlight performance of this movie. I believe every word he says and every gesture he makes as coming from a man who loves the smell of napalm in the morning. Sam Worthington might be the worst actor I've ever seen. Zero facial expressions, not on the vocal inflection. In fact, it sounds like he had some trouble sticking the landing on the American accent. All of that combined with the CGI shackles results in the main character I can't connect with and therefore don't care about. I don't hate this movie. I'm indifferent to it. Well, I disagree with almost <laughs> all of that. Um, okay. except, you, except, for, <laughs> except for your... Uh, comments about Stephen Lang and Sam Worthington I'm, I'm pretty much on the same same page with you there but I I, I don't think the the unobtainium plot I don't think it fucking matters uh, I really don't and I think the movie has a lot more to say than be nice to trees uh, I mean say what you want about this movie uh, and a lot of people have had plenty to say about it uh, they, they call the plot derivative uh, a lot of people think its effects don't hold up. I disagree. I don't think they're perfect, but I think they hold it pretty well. Uh, and uh, its lead character is the blandest motherfucker alive, which I do agree with. Yeah. But you have to admit, regardless of which side of the love it, hate it line that you land, that Avatar contains some of the greatest world building that's ever been in a sci-fi movie. Uh, every creature on Pandora, every plant, every everything you see on that planet is created with the utmost care the world building and the filmmaking craft with which the world is built is the film's greatest strength uh and it's not just that pandora looks cool uh anybody can make something that looks cool but cameron has created a genuine ecosystem where that is believable where every living being on the planet is connected you know i think it, it's a really incredible sci-fi concept uh world the, some of the i think the greatest sci-fi stories all have one Thing in common and that's great world building it's one reason that star wars is as enduring as it is one of the coolest sci-fi concepts that cameron introduces here is that of, of awa which is the goddess that the navi worship uh she's seen as a as like a, a goddess of the navi but she exists within the 
biological data stream that connects every living being within this ecosystem. And when that ecosystem is threatened, Awa fights back by directing Pandora's wildlife to attack the invaders, the humans. Uh, it's an incredible concept uh, for, for science fiction. It's one that kind of blurs the line between the natural and the supernatural, which I think is super interesting. Um, but I do think that, you know, you, you said that, you know, this is a movie about be be nice to trees. Well, I, I think there's a lot more to say about that, that. I think Cameron has a lot more to say than just that. Uh, but this is his rallying cry for environmentalism. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, in the year since Titanic, you know, in, in a large part because of all those deep sea dives he was making, Cameron became very passionate about environmentalism. Also because of his marriage to uh, Susie Amos, which we talked about in our last episode. And Avatar is 100% a result of that. Um, but it's not just about, it's not just as, as surface level, I think, as you, you kind of made it seem. This is a film that calls on humanity to recognize our responsibility for the destruction of the natural world around us. But it's also critical of colonialism and imperialism. Uh, because when you watch this film, w- w- it seems a little bit odd at first glance that all of the people of color that are cast in this film, almost all of them, are, are, are almost exclusively hidden behind CGI, right? CCH Pounder, Zoe Saldana, uh, Wes Studi, who's Native American. Uh, but I, I think that's intentional. I think we're supposed to see the Navi as people of color because that makes the idea of these, these, colonial, these colonialist humans coming in and encroaching on their land, I think that makes that a much more powerful statement when you see them as people of color. But I do think, and unlike, uh, especially that one long review that Gary read, un- unlike what that guy thinks, I don't think Cameron's being that preachy about all this because his what he's really what he's really doing he's he's still making a popcorn movie, he's still making a blockbuster, and he treats it that way. I mean, his the, these characters, you know, his his your main character Jake Sully is this kind of blandly handsome everyman soldier. His villains are, uh, you've got a snarling corporate executive. You've got a, sn- a scarred military badass. Uh, Sigourney Weaver plays a Sigourney Weaver type character. You know, Michelle Rodriguez plays Michelle Rodriguez. Uh, the, the plot is, you know, the plot itself. And, and you, you talked a little bit about the difference between plot and story. I think story is much more important than plot. I think plot is what you get on the first time you watch it. I think story is something you get. That, that, that has more of a, a lasting impact on how you see the film. The plot is predictable. Uh, every character in this movie is an archetype, uh, you know, a, a pre- but those aren't, those aren't, I'm not complaining. Those aren't complaints. Uh, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because the truth is that, that James Cameron as a director, something we've seen over and over during this series, but I think you especially see it on this film is that he is fluent in the language of blockbuster cinema more than almost any other director alive, except for maybe Steven Spielberg. He knows how to manip- manipulate his audience. He knows how to thrill you. He, he can fill, fill you with righteous anger, like in that last, like the, the big Braveheart moment at the you know with Sam, mm. Sam Worthington's character. Uh, but I think he, he also cast folks like Sigourney Weaver, Michelle Rodriguez, Giovanna Ribisi. Uh, I disagree with your statement about Ribisi. I think he does a great job in this. I think he is. He makes you want to punch him in the face, and I think that's 100% intentional. Uh, Stephen Lang, like all of these folks, they know exactly what kind of movie they're making. They know that this is 
a, a piece of popcorn entertainment. Uh, but if there's one person who is the weak link, who is probably taking the whole thing a little too seriously, it's Sam Worthington. Uh, but unfortunately, he's the film's main focus, which makes him a, the film's biggest flaw. I think so. People, people we, hate this, but I think you were dead on that. Like Chris Pratt would have been like a great uh, casting for this. Somebody just needs a little bit. They, it, that, that role needs somebody with a little bit more natural charisma than Sam. Yeah, it's just a little has. more pop. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I honestly think it's a matter of uh, getting lost in translation a little bit, because if you do watch him in Rogue, he's incredibly charismatic. Uh, I don't know if he was just f- trying, to, if it was something with what he was trying to do with his performance, or if it was because he was focusing so much on trying to talk in an American accent, which he doesn't do that successfully. But something about him seems very bland. Now, the blandness almost works in the film's favor because his character comes is such a blank slate that his role as the audience surrogate, which is really what Jake Sully is, almost succeeds. But he's so devoid of personality that it's kind of hard to care about him one way or the other, yeah. honestly. He is yeah. he is by far the weakest thing about the film. It's mm-hmm. tough because his character is the most spelled out, but like um yeah, the um like one thing I'll give him credit for is like you said, it creates an entire ecosystem, but you could also take any particular character in this movie and there he clearly thought about them. Like oh, I even yeah. saw like one thing with like Sigourney Weaver. Uh, uh, Grace. She she's smoking in the movie, mm-hmm. and so like there's a apparently a website called like Scene Smoking, and it's like people that shit on smoking in movies or something. And it's like <laughs> anyway, they were uh they gave it a rating of black lung, and there was a uh, <laughs> there was a article in the New York Times that uh they were talking about Doctor Grace and why she smokes in the movie, and he was saying that like well. Uh, it was like not about making her look cool. In fact, uh, let's see. The quote says, uh, from a character perspective, we were showing that Grace doesn't care about her human body, only her avatar body, which again is a negative comment about people in our real world living too much in their avatars, perhaps meaning online and video games and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. I was like, so he's thinking about these things even more. So, Oh yeah. I mean, every little thing, like one thing they, they never really comment on in the movie is that like all of the, the creatures that live on Pandora all have two extra limbs. They all have, they're all, they all have six limbs. Yeah. Even the banshees have four wings, which is mm-hmm. something that doesn't exist. So it makes them very alien, even though they're somewhat shaped like, animals that we we recognize uh, but they had to figure out the whole f- physiology of how like muscles would move if you had six legs instead of four you know like a horse uh i mean they thought about everything every little plant has a basis in science and it makes the world feel very real uh now there are other things about the film that don't work uh, I, I think sam worthington's narration is pretty silly i think it's it's pretty dumb uh i think the dialogue in general is pretty stilted i think that might come from i don't think james cameron's a bad bad at writing dialogue i don't think it's his strong point but i don't, I think he is maybe trying to emulate some of the sci-fi that he read when he was a kid which makes it come across as a little stilted and the white savior stuff in here is 
pretty tone deaf. I was going to uh, mention that when you when you talked about like the the reason people of color were in the blue, I was going to say like yeah, but you know there were a lot of people who took this as like okay, but there's still a white savior coming in here. It's to- still a white guy coming in, and he's got to save the day. I mean, it's Dances with Wolves, it's The Last Samurai, it's a, one of a hundred other movies that have done the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, and and all that stuff makes the film an easy target for folks who do want to hate on it. But as a piece of blockbuster action filmmaking, that it fucking rips as James Cameron, regardless of what you think about the characters and the dialogue and the performances, nobody directs action the way that James Cameron does. Nobody in Hollywood is doing it the way he is. And the, and with the, the, the way that he's able to be creatively free because of the technology in this, because he can put his camera wherever he wants without having to worry about climbing on a, a helicopter on the side of a building in, in Miami, like he did on true lies, he right. can put his camera wherever the hell he wants. So he's able yeah. to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. Uh, and Jake also yeah. drops out of that thing and hangs onto the missile and nobody yeah. says Just, you're fired. I know. I thought about that <laughs> when I was watching. <laughs> I thought that had to be intentional. Uh, and, be. and, you know, you complained a little bit about the film's length, but I don't think the, I think the movie, even at three hours or nearly three hours long, depending on which cut you watch, I watched um, the over three hour one. The the uh, the movie never slows down. It like I mean, Jake is in his avatar body in like the first fifteen minutes of the movie, and that first sequence where he's uh, where well not the not the first where he's running through the basketball court, but that first sequence where he meets Natiri, that whole set piece is incredible. Uh, where you know it's just one thing after another because he's running from the the big panther lizard thing and then meets Natiri and it's just a really incredible set piece. And then the film's final act is a long elaborate set piece that like everything, I mean that, that final battle, which is a good 45 minutes long is a masterpiece in action filmmaking. It is, it is incredibly well put together. I mean, movies like this, they don't get, it's, it's ironic considering how much money this movie made, but movies like this don't get made anymore. Even it's only been what, 13 years since this came out, but movies like this aren't guaranteed hits anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, it, I, it, it's weird. Cause this movie spawned a whole new era of kind of blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, this came out a year after Iron Man and the Marvel universe started, but mm-hmm. the Marvel universe has clearly been influenced by this, uh, which, and the, the ironic part of that is of course the Marvel movies are all existing IPs where this wasn't. But movies like this aren't guaranteed hits anymore because it's not based on an existing property. I mean, for a studio to spend $200 million plus on a movie nowadays, it's got to have a built-in audience. And usually that built-in, and usually the movie has a Marvel or DC logo in front of it. Uh, Even Cameron's own Avatar sequels that are coming kind of fall into that category because they're building on the success of the first film. They're no longer like an original. Now, granted, they might be telling original stories, but people are going to see Avatar the way of water because of Avatar, you know? So even, even the sequels kind of fall into that category now. Mm. Uh, but this movie, the original Avatar was not based on a pre-existing IP. It's a movie featuring original characters that were specifically written for the screen. And it only exists because James Cameron spent more than a decade and millions of dollars of his own money to help create the technology that was needed to make it possible. Uh, I mean, the Avatar, regardless of what you think of the movie, I think it's pretty good. I, I don't, think it, it's not my favorite James Cameron movie by a long shot. Uh, but I think his action filmmaking in it is pretty amazing. But one thing you can say about it is that this is James Cameron. This is the, the result of James Cameron. We've talked about his obsessiveness, his intensity, this whole series. 
this is the product of his obsession and laser-like focus that we, on a scale that we haven't even seen before this. I mean, th- he willed this into existence and spent, like I said, over a decade and a lot of money, not just the studio's money, but his own money during that hiatus to develop what, because he had a vision for a movie that he wanted, that he, he had it in his head and the tools to make it didn't exist in the real world. And he just created the tools like that's fucking cool man like i think that's really cool it's hard not to appreciate the 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 technology for sure i don't i don't want to say like i'm i'm like looking for the uh, playboy centerfold of any of the avatar characters but <laughs> they do feel real like i mean and that's something that most cg never gets right and i feel like this might be one of the first where it's just like really hard to distinguish my actual not even with zoe saldana um my actual first like thought of that was in the room where jake's fucking avatar is standing in the same room as him like sitting next to it you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. or laying next to it i'm like that's kind of wicked like yeah it's cool it's just I don't know. Like you're you're going to be transferred into this body, and it's just uh, I don't know. It transitions really well from completely, I guess, animated to like real life, and uh, I don't know if anything's ever nailed it quite as well as Avatar did. And no, and it's it's weird, like because people look back at this now and they don't they don't see that as 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 big of a deal as it was at the time. Because like I'm watching She Hulk on Disney Plus right now, which is doing the same thing. And that's a TV show that comes out every week, you know? But yeah. at the time that this was out, like that was a big deal. I mean, it had been done, this kind of performance capture had been done with Gollum on Lord of the Rings, and which is still not quite the same thing because, they're, they're, you know, Gollum is a fully animated character where they're basing facial movements on Andy Serkis, but it's not ma- they're not mapping his face. Of course, they did it again on King Kong. Uh, and it, it's been done, but since Avatar, it's been done all, all the time. Like the, the, uh, the, the Planet of the Apes movies, you know, the War from the Planet of the Apes, all those movies used that technology. I mean, it is pretty commonplace now, but at the time, I mean, this was, nobody, nobody had done anything, anything to this extent before. Uh, and I think people take that for granted with you know, over time, they start to forget just how big of a deal that was. And that that's partially probably why it was as successful at the box office. Well, that, that just plays off of what I feel like the movie's biggest theme is, 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 uh, uh, humans and their entitlement. Um, yeah. so just go uh, take what you want. <laughs> yeah. So they just don't appreciate what they've got. That's right. You don't like, like, mm. Like the Joni Mitchell song? I was going to say, you just like <laughs> pave paradise and build up a parking lot. Uh, was, like, that was literally going to be the joke, Justin. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, like other James Cameron films that we've discussed, multiple versions of this film do exist. The film was released, uh, re-released rather, in theaters in July of 2010 as Avatar Special Edition and included an additional nine minutes of footage, pretty much all CG footage in that one, including an extended version of the sex scene between Jake and Natiri. Mm. Uh, and then in November of that year, 2010, a three disc extended collector's edition Blu-ray was released, which is what I, I watched mine on. Uh, that included the theatrical cut, the special edition cut, plus a brand new collector's extended edition, which ran 16 minutes longer than the theatrical cut. And it's honestly probably, and that one hits right under that hits at two hours and 58 minutes. Uh, that's the longest cut of the film. So the original theatrical was 
just under two hours and 45 minutes. Uh, but I think, I, I think my preferred, ver- I watched all three of these versions uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I think the longest, the, the collector's edition version is actually my favorite. Um, some of the main footage that's in it, that's new is at the beginning when you've got Jake doing his voiceover uh, and learning about his brother dying and stuff, they actually, that footage, there's footage of him on earth that they had cut from the, that they had added to it, then cut from the original film. Uh, And I think that, I think the footage is really good. And I really like getting a glimpse of what earth looks like in this future of James. It's really well thought out. It's very Blade Runner. It's very Blade Runner, except it's bright, brightly lit daytime yeah, yeah. But yes it is very blade runner inspired uh it's a it's really cool and it makes you want to see more of that uh and then the other scene that it's like a major um there's a major uh extension is uh with sigourney weaver's character uh she has some some kind of character moments that get played out a little bit longer yeah in that cut that that's really good i think that, that actually adds to the film uh, I see why they cut those scenes because it, you know, they're not, they're unnecessary to the film. But I, I, I like I like that cut the best personally. The one thing that I that I really like about this movie is well, let's see what what's the way I want to word this. The the one thing that I I know about this movie is that it does have this great world building. So as much as I seem like lukewarm on it, um. I'm really excited to see what comes next yeah. uh, for the, for the sequels because, because there there's the world's built or the, the that universe is built. And so from, from starting from that, like what does he do with the sequels? And then also it's James Cameron. And I know like even in interviews I was reading where they were like, well, what's the next step? And he's like, well, this movie took a long time to make. So he's like, I feel like a good next step is, how do you do it and do more in a quicker amount of time? I don't know that he's achieved that since it's been 13 years, 13 years. <laughs> he's taken another big break. here, Yeah. Uh, making all these sequels, but it's like, what's this guy got up his sleeve? Like, uh, I'm yeah, curious. what are we going to see that we've never seen before? Yeah. Cause you know, that's his goal. Like yeah. he he's like, all right, well we've established, we've done the world building. Now what do we do? And yeah. uh, I don't think, I mean, if we've learned anything about James Cameron, he's not, he's not doing anything for the sake of doing it. Like yeah. he's doing something because he thinks he's got something to show you that you've never seen before. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. And I've also learned to not doubt James Cameron. I know. I mean, and, and people are, <laughs> people are doing that again with avatar too. You know, they're, they're throwing shade and doubting James Cameron. I'm like, man, we, we know you don't, you don't bet against this guy. He knows what he's doing. Uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver is coming back for the sequel. Really? But she's playing a, the teenage daughter of Jake and Natiri. Interesting. That's... <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know how that's going to work. Well, I mean, if they're... I, and, uh... Yeah, but I, I mean, I guess if if she's uh, Navi, then... Yeah. Yeah, you just got that Scorny Weaver voice. I guess so. Whatever <laughs> happens there. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I'll watch it and see I'll what watch happens. It. And I'm going to go see, <laughs> I'm going to go see Avatar when it comes out and it's being re-released in theaters at the end of this month and... I would like to see it in theater again. Cause I do think one thing about this movie is that um, it loses a little bit, something watching it at home. Is it, is it coming back out in like 3d and everything? I don't know if it's 3d. I know it's a new uh, like restoration, like a a, a HDR 4k HDR restoration. 
So I, I would assume there's 3D involved as well. And I, I think so because they they filmed this movie. Big Sully's going to reach out and punch everybody in the nuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, how but, much but, more detail do you need? Well, but, but you say that, and actually, and and like some of the later stuff I was reading from Cameron, like more recent stuff, uh, was he was, you know, like somebody was trying to ask him about like the 3D thing because he he was uh, he preached 3D for forever, like sure. right after this movie, and like and every you know, and everything was coming out in 3D after this. Movie. Everything was coming out in 3D. We had 3D TVs and stuff, stuff that has proven not to to work so well right yeah. now. And um, but he was saying that like you know the I'm gonna misword this because I don't have any of this pulled up, but basically he was talking about how Hollywood like doesn't understand like they're more interested in taking the quick buck. So they're going to, they're going to, they're like, Oh, this is a fad, like a, a thing we need to jump on right now. And he's like, well, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, the 3d that I'm talking about is the 3d that you film with the intention of 3d in mind. It's not about like poking you in the face with a stick. It's right. It's about creating a world that's three dimensional and not doing the friday the 13th 3d thing. right right and, right. and, and he's saying <laughs> ping pong balls going at your face you know <laughs> exactly and he was saying that like you know these movies take time to build and create with the technology that we have of course we can involve that but like right now it, it, it's taking time but they ditched that for like the quick hit and uh he was yeah. like so we kind of got he's like you know you, you've seen a lot of movies come out that they're like uh re repurposed into 3d or whatever and he was like and that's you know that works for a minute but then it's gonna fall apart he's like it's not immersive yeah he's like that's not the same thing he's like that's not what i'm talking about and he's like so they went towards that to try to make as much money as they could in the quickest amount of time and it kind of fucked us basically right so i mean when the movie first came out, I mean, obviously, after making $2 billion at the box office, Fox wanted a sequel. <laughs> uh, and and honestly, when Cameron originally envisioned this film, and he he thought he said the same thing about Alita, actually, uh, he, he was planning two different trilogies. Alita was going to be a trilogy. This was going to be a trilogy. Uh, and so far, we haven't seen a sequel to either of those films. But uh, they did not long after Avatar came out they did confirm that there were two more sequels coming that later got extended to four sequels. Uh, and the first of those we mentioned uh, is coming out soon. It actually began filming in September of 2017. That's when they, that's when they started filming avatar two. Uh, as of this recording, we're about four months from its release uh, December of 2022 with several of the original cast members from the film returning. Plus a couple of newcomers, Kate Winslet's coming along for the ride this time. Um, I don't know about an Alita uh, sequel. I hope we get one one day. But I it, don't it, either. I, I saw that, some it of those. A, I looked up the box office on it, and it made a lot of money worldwide. Not mm. like Avatar numbers, but enough to warrant a sequel. So I don't know what's going on. Yeah, mm. it's, it's fucking nuts. And then, like, one of the interviews I read was, like, from 2010. And uh, with some of this 3D stuff or, like, the technology, it was, it was heavy and it was intensive in the technology. And he was talking about how he was going to use it for 
He's like, Guillermo del Toro has been trying to get at the Mountains of Madness made by H.P. Lovecraft. I'm going to help him get that made. I'm going to produce I, that. Man, I wish. And I know. I know. I was <laughs> that's, like, one of the, that's like one of the great unmade movies. That yeah, I was like, yeah, it's like James Cameron's trying to help Guillermo del Toro in 2010. I was like, what is happening here? Yeah. Why is this movie so hard to... I mean, I get why it's hard to make, but like it's... Well, it's, he, well del Toro wants to make it a hard R rating, you know, true. Yeah. And and spending two hundred million dollars on an R-rated movie uh, is a hard sell. Yeah, I'm just like you even got James Cameron on. Yeah, like, he's got your I, back on this. I was I was curious as to y'all's opinion because uh, you know looking, I mean, because they're slated for all the way to Avatar five. Mm-hmm. So and James Cameron talking about wanting to do it faster, knowing that means cranking it up to eleven. Do you think he's going to release them like six months apart? Well, he's filming two and three back to back. Okay. Uh, he he's filming two and three back to back, and he he recently, as recently as like a, a two or three weeks ago, said that he may not actually direct four and five himself. He may pass it on to another director and serve hmm. as a a writer producer. So because he's got some other projects that he's interested in working on. Hmm. So we'll see how that how that shakes out. But yeah, two and three were filmed simultaneously. Like the Matrix sequels, you know. Gotcha. Yeah, I saw like a quote from him. Uh, Ashley kept this one. Uh, it, it, he just said, uh, uh, "Somebody asked him like, what's what's after Avatar?" This was right after that. He was like, "No, nah, I think from here on, I'm going to focus pretty much on just directing my own stuff because, frankly, I don't have a lot of time. I've yeah, made I mean, what six or seven films in 25 years. I don't know that I got another 25 years. I might have 15, something like that. So I got to pick my projects carefully and stay focused." Yeah. And uh, of course, Avatar's legacy extends beyond the screen. You know, we've got sequels coming, but back in December of 2015, Cirque du Soleil debuted a, an Avatar-inspired stage show called Tokuk, The First Flight. Uh, back in 2011, Cameron, Lightstorm, and Fox entered into an exclusive licensing agreement with the Walt Disney Company. And then in May of 2017, a new Avatar-themed land called Pandora, the World of Avatar, opened at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Florida. And it is one of my favorite parts of Disney World. Pandora is incredible. Uh, it looks like you've stepped onto the planet. The If you go there at night, the the fauna and flora and the and the 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 walkways all light up like you're on pandora wow. you've got the, the floating mountains the hallelujah mountains are, are floating above you uh the there are two rides there's the the navi river journey and then there is the uh flight of the banshee which is for my money the best ride at all of disney world it is incredible Whew. highly recommended if you go nice. uh it's uh so let's get into though you know what our further viewing would be for for Avatar? Uh, this is a unique film. So, what would you guys pair with it? Um, I actually, um, I was at the barbershop earlier today, and one of the barbers there admitted to having never seen Avatar. So, yeah. I found one. <laughs> um, but I told her, I said, honestly, if you're going to see this, do yourself a favor, see it in the theaters. Mm-hmm. That's the way you'll get the best bang for your buck. I know I know my thing sounded like I really hated this movie, but honestly, I think what Justin said, it does lose a lot on small screen. Um, so do yourself a favor, see it in theaters, which means for further viewing, I don't know that I would watch anything else with this, uh, except maybe the trailers that run before it and the the closing credits all the way to the blue card. Like uh, that, that's it. Um, it, it stands 
and I know I joked early in the episode about comparing it to a, a few other things. That's I'm not the first person to do that, but um, I don't even know that I would pair in, pair any of those things with this. It's such a it's such a unique beast that, uh, and it's long, but um, I yeah I I don't know that I could really say any one particular thing makes a good pairing. It's such a it's such a unique piece of filmmaking. Well, that's a little bit of a cheat there, Todd, but we'll let it pass. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Gary? Oh, uh, no, I've got I've got uh, four easy ones right off the bat. Uh, I will say uh, Kong Skull Island. Uh, I will say. Um, Which it has that kind of imperialist, like yeah, colonialism you know, thing. Yeah, 100%. And you're yeah. going into this unknown world, like mm-hmm. these this already established ecosystem of things uh same with jurassic park like trying to bring it back um mm. and uh i you'll hate this one but i would say prometheus like yes. trying to <laughs> and uh and i would say the shape of water guillermo del toro since i mentioned him already in the show just uh, the interaction between like an unknown species like just the uh, it's it's a different it's a different thing but it's it's kind of a similar they still fuck and there and that there's the understanding of the people but uh no man i and i think that a lot of those uh some of them's just because of the filmmaker involved like just people approaching like the same kind of concept of of what what's going on here um and also i would say all four uh beautifully made films um, and uh, they look good they, yeah like, they, I, hey they, i'll they, even say prometheus looks good every like every good. ridley scott movie does yeah, so so that's uh that's all. But yeah, well, those four. I'm gonna go with a movie that I've mentioned quite a few times during this episode, and that's Alita Battle Angel, <laughs> because I think more people need to see this movie. Uh, I think it's really good. I think it's one of the best things that Robert Rodriguez has done. Uh, I think it really showcases the same performance capture technology that Avatar uses, maybe even a little bit more believable. Uh, and I think it's a really fun movie that, like Avatar, builds a whole world. Uh, granted, they had you know source material on this, so there's a lot more to work from, but it's got a great cast. Christoph Waltz, uh, Jennifer Connelly, uh, Mahershala Ali, really great cast. And then uh, in the lead role, the title role, Rosa Salazar, uh, who is really outstanding in it, uh, she was also in that the Netflix show Brand New Cherry Flavor, which is a really cool series if you haven't seen it. Uh, she's really outstanding in that. But she is, I, I really hope they make more of these movies because I think I, I would really like to see the story continue. And it kind of uh, ends in a way that hints at sequels. Because like I said, they planned it as a trilogy. It just hasn't come to fruition yet. Uh, but I think a ba- Alita Battle Angel is is a really fun movie and definitely worth checking out. I'll be honest, I I did mine just because I wanted to see how Kurt how Kurt adds adds it to the list of our <laughs> recommendations. Well, he won't have anything to add. I know. <laughs> One thing I, I will say about JC is that uh, JC, you guys, you guys tight? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're close. We hung out. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. I thought you were talking about Jesus Christ. I same same person. <laughs> um, no, no. I was just gonna say, um, I, I did see this quote uh, after Avatar was released, and like what it, he thought was, uh, you know, they were like, how, how do you establish like uh, creating what's real and what's not real? Yada yada. yada. It was some kind of question about that and stuff. And I think if you could take anything from Avatar, there, like the guys like pushing the boundaries there, that like it's almost 
well, his quote is, uh, it's meaningless now, the idea of what's real. I think the lines will just continue to blur between CG photography until it becomes meaningless. Whether you capture something with a lens or you use imaginary photons and CG, the rules of lighting are the same. If you want sunlight, you create sunlight. You either do it with a xenon light or a 12K HMI, or you do it with a sun source and a global illumination and a CG scene file. It's the same thing. You have to imagine the sunlight. It's in neither case usually is it actually sunlight because all cinematography is a form of artifice anyway masquerading as reality and the cg does the same thing i just think it's going to become more seamless as we go along and less relevant to dissect it or to deconstruct it into what its component parts are i I just thought that was interesting there like he's like blurring this line in no interview when you see him say that he thinks actors are are unnecessary yeah um but that the the ability to like put them anywhere at any time is yeah. going to become seamless. Well, and that's like James Cameron just being a futurist. You know, he is looking forward. He's always forward thinking, and he's usually right because he's very intelligent and he's on the he, he's you know he uh, puts himself in circles of people who are experts on these things. So he he kind of has an idea of where the technology is going. Uh, you know, we named the series James Cameron: The Man of Tomorrow. That's part of the reason. Uh, the most obvious reason for that title was that the majority of his films are set in the future or deal with the future in some sort of tangible way. Uh, his films all exhibit a s- kind of cynical view of humanity's ability to adapt to a changing world. But he is forward thinking. He is the man of tomorrow. He seems confident in humanity's ability to change. Uh, you know, no fate, but what we make. That's a line from Terminator 2 that gets quoted a lot. It's one that could really kind of apply to his entire filmography. Uh, the future that James Cameron gives us, and that includes this film, but really all of his films, uh, it's an unfixed one. And like the highway at the end of Terminator 2, it's a dark future, but it's one that we have the ability to change for the better. I really think James Cameron is a, is a very hopeful filmmaker. Uh, it's like Sarah Connor says at the end of Terminator 2, and I think this encompasses his entire filmography so far. He, she says, the unknown future rolls towards us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. So you can see him as being a cynical filmmaker, but I see him as being a very hopeful filmmaker uh, and, and someone who, you know, he's in Avatar. He's looking at like, this is where we're headed, but we don't have to go there. Yeah, I mean, and as much as people want to say it's like, the things that come before maybe he's using this as to say hey look these are all cautionary tales and i'll i'll do the best cautionary tale of yeah. like this is the path that we're on well you yeah. could say it's dark but he's shining a light on just mistakes we've made in the past yeah. like it's yeah. not necessarily where he thinks it has to go but showing you a possibility of what could happen if we yeah. uh proceed on a certain path i mean if the but guy was saying we could but if we we could choose our own path no yeah. fate but what well, we make well, yeah, and I, I guess what I'm saying is, it's like if the guy was a cynical filmmaker, he wouldn't be doing all of the shit he's doing now, and his wife with the school that she's doing right. now, and yeah. and like him uh, with Avatar two having the all vegan catering, and <laughs> you know, like the uh, he, he clearly cares about the environment and the world around. And I'm I'm a long way from uh, breaking off my obsession with hamburgers, but I love well, cheese. I know I love cheese, so. <laughs> It's tough, but, uh, you know, God bless him. And uh, that's it, guys. That's James Cameron. That for now.
<laughs> James Cameron for now. Well, um, how could we not come back to James Cameron at some point? We spent, uh, you know, like we right before this episode, you found out you you put in like uh, two days worth of hours, like two yeah. full days worth of hours, two full James days Cameron worth moves. of hours, yeah. and little, yeah. little, yeah, a little over forty five. Forty five. That the, wasn't was the counting total. the. That didn't count the two like Discovery Channel, like the um, the the Exodus and the Tomb of Jesus documentaries. If you count those in, we're full forty eight hours of my life have been spent watching James Cameron stuff. That that doesn't include special <laughs> features and things like that. My either. God. <laughs> but, so I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. But we're it's time to move on to our next series. Well, actually, not our next series. We always do Cinema Shock Roulette in between series. So we will be moving on to a new series, but we're going to have a little, you know, rando episode in between. But uh, we're not going to tell you what it is yet. <laughs> so Yeah, you got to tune in the <laughs> bonus episode if you want to know what the uh, rando special movie is in between yep. this. So we're going to be doing our uh, bonus episode yeah, yeah. in between this and the next. So you'll find that on the feed next week if you're subscribed. Uh, and on that bonus episode, we will be announcing what our next Cinema Shock Roulette episode is going to be. So you'll have to tune in. And so. I promise the next series will not be so uh, uh, brain intensive. No, it won't. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a ton of fun. It's going to be a ton of fun. A lot, a lot, uh, a lot hopefully shorter episodes i feel like it has to be because yeah. 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 uh, guy's not doing any three-hour movies right so. yeah exactly yeah. so <laughs> well i guess that's it for this episode then fellas where can you be found on the internet i met this is gary horn um and uh you can follow the national wrestling alliance if you want to get into some wrestling they're on youtube.com slash nwa uh, a lot of my stuff is going to be on the channel now called youtube.com slash NWA extra. Uh, so I'm actually like, I just got back from tapings and I filmed some like uh, some segments and some uh, and filmed, I found a new whole new talk show with our women's tag team champions, pretty empowered. And they are like 20 year old girls. And I am not used to like dealing with them and they were obnoxious, <laughs> but fucking funny and <laughs> like and they were so good and we have a whole 10 week first season that we made together of nice. their first of their first thing that's and, exciting and that's gonna was, be on the youtube channel the new youtube yeah youtube.com slash nwa extra and they're, they're fantastic so you guys should uh check that out i can't wait to check it out Nice. If uh, if I haven't pissed you off with uh, with my ramblings about <laughs> Avatar, uh, please, please consider come listening to me uh, talk about Star Trek on Computer Resume podcast, wherever you get your podcasts on all the socials and Patreon at Computer Resume. And I am at Mr. Davis on Facebook, Twitter. Mr. Insta- Todd A. Davis. That's right. Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you, sir. Matt, Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and D&D Beyond. And find me on Instagram and Letterboxd. I'm also on Twitter, but I very rarely update it. So Instagram and Letterboxd are the places to find me, Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the podcast at cinema underscore shock on all the usual places. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us at cinemashock.net, where you can find a link to our Discord channel, our merchandise, and every episode we've ever released. Also, you know, tell your friends about if they like avatar or if they hate avatar they might really enjoy todd Uh, (laughs) that's (laughs) fair until next week may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other the sky people have sent us a message that they can take the keys that no one can stop them well 
We will send them a message. You ride out as fast as the wind can carry you. You tell the other clans to come. Tell them Johnny calls to them. You fly now with me, my brothers, sisters, and we will show the sky people that they cannot take the keys and that these, these are our keys. It's honestly better than Sam Worthington's performance. And it, thank you. <laughs> does it ever, you know, as we wrap this up, does it ever just hit you how this Johnny has the keys reference is coming off a stupid, like throwaway line? <laughs> now on, it's not the, the living whole thing. Dead. It is Our just, very first episode ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. it has just been nonstop. It's just I, fucking I love it. mind blowing. I, I love the life it's taken on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am Mr. Go. Callback. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. One of the coolest sci-fi concepts that Cameron introduces here is that of uh, Ewa, the the goddess of the Navi worship. The uh, she seen as a goddess. Justin, take that line again. Yeah, Gary, Gary, Gary you were you were not, not muted. muted for that. Oh, whoops! I thought I was <laughs> sorry. <laughs>